Welcome to Japanimation Station, an anime podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to dive into the wild and wacky world of anime. This week on the show, we're taking a brief break from our uh, exploration through the world of Full Metal Alchemist to instead take a little pit stop at a very familiar anime corner for us. Uh, we're going to talk about Dragon Ball, Jonathan. We're gonna. We're not just talking about Dragon Ball. We're talking about Dragon Ball Super. We're not just talking about Dragon Ball Super. We're talking about Dragon Ball Super Superhero because there's a new movie. It's out in theaters in North America. We both saw it this weekend. We even got to see it in Japanese. I thought that would never fucking happen. Yes. Uh, I love this movie so much, Sean. I'm so excited to talk about it. Yes, it is. It is a great Dragon Ball movie, uh, and it was. And it is very satisfying to be able to go to a movie theater and see it with the Japanese language option. I mean, this movie just released wide. I believe it is the widest release of any anime movie. Um, Almost 4,000 the... theaters. It's, yeah. It's over double what Broly released in, in 2019. Yeah, and it is the, the highest grossing movie in the U.S. box office for the weekend. Uh, although yep. it has, like, almost no competition. But still, uh, it is, it is, it is, it is, like, clear evidence. There's stuff we've talked about in other podcasts before. People should just release anime wide, man. Everyone fucking wants to see it. This movie kicks ass. Everyone went to go see it because it kicks ass and it's Dragon Ball. And we're here to talk about it. I believe it's the second anime of the year to open number one at the American box office. Jujutsu Kaisen Zero did it too. Yes. Um, and those are both Crunchyroll Funimation releases. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a really cool moment. We talked about that with Broly when that came out because that was an unprecedented success. And then we've had several of them since then. But now we're back with Dragon Ball Super Superhero, our first piece of new Dragon Ball animated content in quite a while. The super manga has continued in the in the off years by Toyotaro, but in terms of actual like mainline animated stuff, there's been nothing since the Broly movie, uh, and this is our first new thing. And it's new in every way, because basically no one who worked on past Dragon Ball things worked on this one, other than Toriyama, who wrote and designed it, the, the characters and the story. Uh, and then the main Toei producer. But everyone else was new, new animation style in 3D CGI, all sorts of new stuff. Um, we will be spoiling the movie in a bit here. Do we want to give quick spoiler-free reactions? Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, I I thought it was fantastic. I probably wouldn't put it above Broly. 
I think I would probably say this is my second favorite Dragon Ball movie now. I think it's, it's we have our, like, top three, right? The three great Dragon Ball movies, what are now the three great Dragon Ball movies, which is Broly, um, this, and Battle of Gods, which I would personally put in that order. Um, but this is fantastic, you know. Uh, if you have any love in your heart for Gohan and Piccolo, like, this is th that movie, right? It's the movie you saw in the trailers where it's really, it's particularly it's like Piccolo is front and center, and he's effectively the protagonist. Um, and it's really nice to just get that side of Dragon Ball, which it was really big in Z, in particular in the, like, Frieza, like, you know, the first two-thirds of Z, I guess, everything up until uh, Boo, where that was, like, a huge part of the focus of the franchise. And then they were more kind of sidelined for a lot of Super. And so it's really nice to get that side of the world um, its own big movie. And I think the um, 3D animation looks awesome. There's a lot of great action in it. I think there's a lot of great personality in it. Um, it is nice to see the timeline be moved up. It's several years after Super Broly. Um, and so Pan is older and she's like a character. Goten and Trunks are older and they have new redesigns. Like it just feels like a proper continuation of Dragon Ball Super while also being able to focus on things that the Super franchise didn't really get super deep into. And it's just a great movie on top of all of that. So if you're a Dragon Ball fan, I think this is just an absolute must watch. Yeah, I agree with pretty much all of that. I don't, I would need to like see it again and think on it to say which I think is better, this or Broly or Battle of Gods. Because um, I think all of them are very different and do yes. specific different things well. Like Broly aesthetically is the peak of Dragon Ball. It's like near the peak of anime in some ways. So mm. like that's just, you know, such a phenomenal aesthetic experience. And I love the visuals in Superhero, but it's not as, like, good or to my taste as that. But in so many other ways, like, this is, like, this feels like if I got the Dragon Balls together and I summoned Shenlong and I said, Shenlong, would you please make me, Jonathan Lack, the Dragon Ball movie I've always wanted? This is the movie that Shenlong would have made for me. Mm -hmm. Because it is about Gohan and Piccolo, who are my favorite Dragon Ball Z characters, like... I know Piccolo is in, like, Dragon Ball as well, but, like, the Piccolo whose arc really starts in Z with Gohan, yeah. those are my... And that's why that's my favorite, you know, overall stretch of the series is those first two-thirds of Z of basically Gohan's maturation, Piccolo on the side, a lot of those characters. And then all the stuff I love from the Boo arc, like Videl and Pan and some of the extended universe around that, Goten and Trunks. And so it really takes all of that as its center. It is finally a Dragon Ball movie and finally a piece of modern Dragon Ball where Goku and Vegeta are completely sidelined. They're just yeah. not... They're in one scene, and that's it. And I really love that, because it. I rewatched all the recent movies, Battle of Gods, Resurrection F, and Broly recently, and it just struck me, and then thinking about Super, that every piece of modern Dragon Ball has been pretty Goku-Vegeta-centric, other yeah. than the future Trunks arc, where you have Trunks in there. But even then, it's still Goku-Vegeta and Trunks. Um, and so I think it's great we finally got a piece that kind of decentered those characters, let someone else be the star. It does a great job with all of that. I think the sense of humor is phenomenal, but also just the character work, I think, is the best Toriyama has written in the modern era. There's so many good character details about everyone's lives and, you know, where they've come and where they're going. Um, I do think this is the best script of the modern DBZ movies. Like, it's a really well-structured movie with, like, great dialogue and, and character work and all of that. So, you know, it's another piece of modern Dragon Ball that just feels very special and unique and different. And I really like that about it. Um, and I'm excited to talk about it because it's just, it is such a pure... I, I had the biggest grin on my face watching this movie, and I'm so happy it exists. 
yeah it's just it, it it's just very fun to be able to have these kinds of dragon ball movies you know like compared to the the old style where they're like the 50 minute hey this is this weird kind of non-canon we're just gonna repackage the most recent arc of the anime to you in and shave off the serial number and give everybody different names um <laughs> and yeah it's like you know resurrection f i think is a more inconsistent thing even if it's got good stuff in it it is not like an amazing movie um but battle of gods broly and this all feel like they're such essential pieces of dragon ball um and being really good movies on top of it but also just being things that feel like they push the franchise in interesting new directions um and, it, and coming out of this movie i was just like i really need them to start making another tv show like i really want them to continue on um with like some of the new characters and where you know pick up more of the plot threads and get more gohan and piccolo stuff see what goku and vegeta and broly and that gang is up to like it's just like it's crazy to me that dragon ball still feels this vibrant and that's kind of how i felt coming out of this movie it was like man like dragon ball just feels so present and current and like alive still um and that's like battle of gods kind of brought it back um and that was a while ago at this point and then nine this years just, <laughs> yeah and this is like this is just like that another shot in the arm where it's like man like dragon ball can keep going and it's crazy and it's awesome yeah it's really cool and you know i think that's actually a good transition into a little bit of the backstory of how this movie came about because it is worth saying at, you know broly came right on the heels of the super anime they yeah. they stopped the anime and then the movie came out about eight months later in japan and it was, you know, uh, the same director who did the second half of Super Tatsuya Nagamine directed that movie. That movie had a new animation supervisor in Naohiro Shintani who did a phenomenal job. And that was the first new animation supervisor the show had had in decades um, who really gave it a facelift. And it was a really great effort. And I think we all expected Broly, because Broly was a hit everywhere it came out. And it was a huge hit in Japan. I think everyone expected there would be more. And instead... Um, the Broly team wound up going off and working on a lot of other Toei properties. So Tatsuya Nagamine has been directing the Wano arc of One Piece for the last couple of years. And a lot of the people who worked on Broly, key animators and such, have been working on that as well. And um, I, I, if you're an anime fan, you've probably heard the hype. The Wano arc of One Piece has, in an anime form, has been spectacular. It's been probably the best, you know, in terms of a production version of like a weekly anime where it comes out every week, you know, rain, snow, or shine. Um that I think I've ever seen. It's very consistent in that way. Um, some of the animators went off and worked on the Dragon Quest Adventure of Dai anime that Toei is making based on the classic manga. Um, so they've kind of been scattered to the winds and they're just, the people didn't quite exist to make Dragon Ball. And so this is Toei's 3D CGI team that sort of came together to do this movie. Um, and it's not just 3D CGI because like, oh, traditional animators weren't available. I think that team had a real vision for how to do this in mm -hmm. 3D. And if you look at some of the different behind the scenes details that have leaked, it seems like there was a lot of enthusiasm for doing it this way. Um, and so we have a new director and animation supervisor and everyone on this. Uh, and I think that's an interesting kind of state of affairs, but it leads to something that I think is very unique. And I think that's part of the fun of the movie. Yeah, and, and that, so, I mean, so the director of the movie is Tetsuro Kodama, who, he was the CGI director on Super Broly, so that's kind of like, you know, the, which is that, you know, Super Broly doesn't have a huge amount of CGI in it, but it has a couple of those CG sequences when it goes fucking crazy, and then he's worked on other stuff, like he's worked on Pretty Cure, um, which is also a Toei thing, right, so, like, he's been doing CG stuff there for a while, but this is, like, his first, like, big, big project, 
um, that is full CG. Um, and then one other thing when I was looking through the cast and kind of looking at who worked on this that really stood out to me is the animation director is Chikashi Kubota, um, who is, has been a chief animation director on a bunch of really great projects, probably like the crown jewel in his career in terms of like quality stuff is that he was the chief animation director for season one of One Punch Man. Anyone who has seen season one of One Punch Man knows what the fuck that means that you've got uh -huh. that guy. Uh, it's like Jesus Christ. Uh, that is some of the best looking any like season of TV anime has has ever looked. Like it's up there with like the best stuff and like Kimetsu no Yaiba. Um, so, you know, so it's like there are some like really, really strong people working on it. But as you say, it's not like the people who were working on Super all the way through um like some people have have done a little bit of dragon ball stuff but it is a largely new team um for this franchise and it's a very new direction by going full 3d cg and i think there's a lot of consternation about the cg stuff when the first announcement came out with like the first kind of teaser trailer um because i don't think anyone expected it to go 3d um but watching the movie i think it was a really strong choice i don't necessarily want every single dragon ball thing for the future to be like this like i still want it to have 2d animation stuff but if you're going to do 3d cg this is awesome i mean they take full advantage of it and it's like a fully realized aesthetic for the movie that feels very authentically dragon ball but also is able to do stuff that you would not have been able to do with more traditional animation methods do you want to just start there and talk about the animation because it's yeah probably the first thing a lot of people are going to notice you know whether you are a casual dragon ball fan or a diehard you're going to notice walking in this looks different right mm -hmm. um and you know this is in a continuum it's a fairly limited data set but there have been a number of anime productions that are full cg um it is by it is rare still but there's a couple of them i think the most notable recent one was lupin the third the first which mm -hmm. was uh, the last Lupin movie made when Monkey Punch was still alive, the mangaka. And he'd always wanted to try a 3D CG movie with, with Lupin. And uh, that's a great movie that did a really tremendous job, I think, taking the aesthetics of Lupin and putting them into the third dimension. And I would put this very much up there on, on the plinth with that movie in terms of successfully adapting an anime aesthetic into 3D and then using 3D for its full potential. Because that's what impressed me about Superhero, is that this did not feel like a replacement for what the Cell animation was doing. This felt like a complete rethinking. Like, I feel like it's impossible to be unsatisfied with the animation here, because every scene, every shot is making such use of the unique possibilities of 3D CGI, which are just very different than Cell animation. Even in... You know, Broly has its big moments where you're going to burst into 3D, but you're going to try to keep kind of an anime aesthetic and move in sort of three dimensions. But it's not the sort of standard language of the piece. This is something where everything is just going to move a little differently and it creates possibilities for the story and the aesthetics uh, in all sorts of ways. And I think they have a lot of fun with that. You can tell it's a team of people who have been cutting their teeth on a lot of other projects and you named, you know, some of them. Clearly the pedigree here is actually quite strong for this fairly unique skill set within anime still at this point. Um, and I think all of that, you know, adds together to make something that feels really, really good. Like you, I would not want this to be the forever aesthetic for Dragon Ball. Although my brother Thomas said they 100% need to make a video game that looks like this, and he's absolutely right, <laughs> because that would mm. be very cool. It actually kind of reminded me, there was a PS2 game based on an arcade game called Super DBZ, Back yes. in the day, this mm -hmm. looks a lot like that because it is CG, but it's honestly, this one is taking, I feel like, more from the manga than past anime adaptations. 
Um, you'll notice that in some of the color work is very uh, inspired by Toriyama's color pages from the manga and then from the full color manga that came out in 2013 that Toriyama didn't color himself but was done in his style. Um, the most notable one is Piccolo has been recolored to match his manga appearance, which he never has been in the anime before. You'll notice that on his arms have the yellow bulbous areas now instead of pink. Um, mm. But I think throughout it has a color setting that kind of calls back to the manga. It uses manga sound effects in certain scenes early on. Um, and all of that just adds to make a very fun, unique aesthetic that feels very, very Dragon Ball to me. It screams Toriyama. It's just coming at it from a different direction. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing, like 3D CG anime, where I feel like we have like it has been like a long rocky road to get to this point where like you can do this and have it be so successful at both feeling like it it legitimately sort of captures the core underlying aesthetic of the art that it is adapting, right? Like this feels Toriyama as fuck, right? Like you look at it and it has that quality to it. As you say, the the coloring feels like they are intentionally going back to the more kind of classic manga coloring. So you've got your yellow piccolo muscles and stuff like that. Um but yeah, I mean the the there's a long road of weird CG anime productions. We've talked about some of them that have like in different styles in Gundam, you know, like MS Igloo and its whole like weird thing of being like PS2 video game graphics and that kind of approach of having it be like well it's got manga inspired character design elements but the overall aesthetic is trying to be more lifelike or real life um, and then we've seen lots of examples many of them very poor in like tv anime of shows trying to do this of trying to do here's a an adaptation of a manga or something and we're doing 3d cg characters probably like one of the most infamous ver versions of that is the um, modern tv berserk adaptation um, which if you've seen any of the gifts online from that production, it just is like disastrous. But there are some key examples in the past like five years or so. Stuff like Land of Lustrous in the TV uh, like area is what I think of immediately as being an incredibly successful production at using 3D CG to capture an anime-esque aesthetic while at the same time doing things with it that you cannot do in a traditional 2D or would be insanely time-consuming and expensive to do it in traditional 2D animation. And I think you also see it, I would put in here in the video game side, video games have now gotten to the point where they can do this. And Arc System Works right. and like Dragon Ball Fighters is the biggest example of that. And some of the way this movie looks feels like a little bit like an Arc System Works thing to me, um, where it is able to instill frames, almost fool you in a way to feel like it's like a 2D image because of how good they are at like blending and compositing all the different elements together um, and like the outlines and everything just sort of fit and snap really well. And so when the camera is still and like there aren't a lot of things moving and using the 3D space, it has a very 2D look to it at times. Um, but then when things move or the camera needs to move, it's able to sort of to capture that 3D element and take full advantage of it. And it's just a really exciting thing to feel like we are at this point where you have can have lots of productions like this. Um, in TV or in movies or in games that are able to actually properly capture an anime aesthetic while still moving it into a 3D space with 3D cameras and all that stuff. It's funny. I mean, this is <clears throat> literally a chapter of my dissertation is going to be on this mm -hmm. um, because my dissertation is about the sort of evolution of anime in the digital era. And, you know, some of that is going to be about sort of the, the Kimetsu no Yaiba thing or the Dragon Ball Super Broly thing of... 
mixing a 3D and a 2D aesthetic in a very kind of fluid synthesis. But then I do want to explore the the full 3Dification of moments where we do go full 3D. I've been waiting for... I, I wrote in my prospectus, I'm going to be writing about Dragon Ball Super Superhero. The movie's not out yet, but I can tell it's going to go in there. This will 100% be in there because it's really interesting what it does. That Lupin movie I mentioned, Land of the Lustrous, will surely be... I still need to watch that, but I'm sure that will be in there once I do. It's on the list. Um, and it is a really fascinating question because I think for a lot of anime fans, certainly in the West, and I'm guessing in Japan, mm -hmm. there's must be some trepidation around it because yes. it's like... We've seen what 3D CG has done in, in Hollywood is the big one, but other industries have mimicked it. And it is so homogenized and homogenizing. And, you know, every American CG movie looks more or less the same. They draw humans the same. They have these sort of semi-exaggerated aesthetics, but it's not very interesting. Um, it's just a lot of sameness. It's why something like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse felt like water in the fucking desert for a lot of us, right? It's like, oh my god, an American studio used 3D CG to do something cool instead of another Pixar movie that sucked, you know, like all of that. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, natural worry of that aesthetic getting flattened out. Like, MS Igloo is one that bears that out, you know, because it takes the Gundam aesthetic and just makes it look like a PS2 game, right? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of... The most prominent use of CG anime for the last 20 years has been in, you know, video game stuff, like Final Fantasy movies that don't really, they're taking the aesthetics from video games, not from anime. Um, but now, as you say, we're going the other way, and we have a lot of video games taking their aesthetics from anime and doing a great job at that. Genshin Impact is one that is an mm -hmm. obvious uh, choice for that examination as well. And I think you look at some of these examples you were naming, and this, I think Dragon Ball Super Superhero is... A particularly good test case for this just because there is so much Dragon Ball and Toriyama's style is so distinctive um, and it does a phenomenal job at it it really does feel like okay this is anime it's anime completely in the computer but it's anime still and that challenges a lot of preconceived notions and that's cool and I think that makes this a really interesting kind of landmark movie in that sense yeah, it's just for a very, very long time, whenever, like, you would see, oh, this movie or this show, uh-oh, it's a, it's either full 3D CG or it uses a lot of 3D CG characters, and it would be like, ah, oh, shit, oh, this is going to be hard to get through, or it would be something you have to kind of look past in order to get into the show, and there have been a few things, like the uh, Netflix Godzilla movies are an example where sometimes that works well for those movies, um, sometimes it did not work particularly well for those movies, um, and it's something you had to kind of look past to enjoy the rest of the film. The Ajin series, which is an anime adaptation of a manga series that was to full 3D CG, also had that problem in a lot of places where anytime it wasn't like a big, cool action scene they spent a lot of time on, it was just characters talking. It was like painful because of how awkward the 3D CG stuff is. And it's just really satisfying to be at this point where you're getting TV shows and you're getting stuff like this. Um, Beastars would be another example of a recent TV anime that does 3D CG well. Like, you're getting it where it's like, it's not a thing you're like, oh no, I have to look past this element in order to enjoy it. It's like, I get to enjoy it because it has this in it. Because it's 3D CG, this movie gets to do things that other Dragon Ball movies don't get to do. Um, and that to me was like a real joy because even though I thought the trailers looked really good, there was still a part of me in the back of my head going into the movie that was a little bit worried that like it would it wouldn't kind of like 
you know, especially with Super Broly being the, like, its predecessor, that it wouldn't be able to kind of live up to a lot of that stuff. And I don't necessarily would, I wouldn't say that it looks as good as Super Broly to me, um, but I wouldn't say that about almost any animated production. Um, but I think it does look phenomenal in its own way, and it uses it um, amazingly. Yeah, and, you know, some parts of it are better than others. I think the scene that stood out to me as, like, weaker on the CG level is the one scene with Goku and Vegeta up on yes. Beerus's planet. Uh -huh. um, the fight you get there between Goku and Vegeta is really fun, but everything else looks a little off. I think Whis was not translated into 3D well at all. Like, Whis looks really off in this movie. Um I think the general environment, I don't know if they really rethought it in CG that particularly well. I think Goku and Vegeta's character models were a tiny bit off in a way that it felt like, and properly so, Gohan and Piccolo had more kind of love put into figuring out how to do them mm -hmm. in 3D. Um, but it is one scene, and the scene itself is still good. That's just one where I noticed, okay, this feels a little off. Um, but then there's a lot of other ones where like, oh, they're doing something here that you couldn't have done in a different kind of production, and I love that. Um, you know, certainly a lot of the stuff in the second half at the big Red Ribbon Army base. Just the entire conception of space that they've done for that set is something you wouldn't do if you were drawing a 2D yeah. anime because it's not the kind of space you would be working with. So there's a lot of fun stuff like that. Yeah, and all the stuff they do with, like, the scale of certain things at in the, like, the full climax with Cell Max and, and Piccolo. And, and, like, it uses, like, the size of things in a way that I think 2D animation you could do, but it's a lot harder to get across. Um, and 3D, I think, is better at, like, working at things at that really big scale because it's just so much more flexible about what you can do with the camera and sell that scale um, and move the camera around to be able to help sell that scale and stuff like that. It was something that stood out to me that, that I feel like that stuff when things get big felt more impressive to me than say the like last Dragon Ball Z movie that also has a giant monster in it and it's good um but I think it is not as interesting to me and then and, and I think this is like the most interesting Dragon Ball characters fighting giant monster has ever looked um which is a right. thing that you get sometimes with like the giant apes and stuff and I think 2D animation sometimes has a hard time with really kind of getting that feeling across whereas this felt like it was triggering triggering my like kaiju movie brain a little bit better um and using some of the techniques those movies have to sell the scale of the figures you're looking at when you're fighting a big figure like a big monster you're in three-dimensional space because you're yeah. not fighting them one-on-one -on -one. you have to go around them and do all mm -hmm. this stuff and so you're able to do that and the final fight in this movie is really fun because like we can debate how interesting the monster they're fighting is, but I think the fact that they're fighting a monster gives them a, fa a, a, a like chance to do a bunch of interesting team up, you know, mechanics and stuff like that. Um, versus, you know, what anime excels at is anything one on one where your characters are relatively similarly sized. That's you know more like a martial arts thing where yeah. it's intentionally going to be more of sort of a side view thing of the body, which is what the sort of animatic kind of style of anime really excels at. And even takes a little bit from, you know, movies with a lot of martial arts or dance are in live action shot a little more that way to give you those, you know, bodies together. Um, yeah, and I think this movie also, it is, as the title says, it's a superhero movie. It's a super mm -hmm. superhero movie. And it is also playing with the language of superhero movies. And I think it's having a lot of fun with that. Both the Japanese tradition of like tokusatsu stuff, there's a little bit in there. But also, it's clearly like the modern superhero cycle of like Marvel and DC and all of that, I think, has trickled in. And so, a lot of the, like, the entire idea of having a big, you know, finale where everyone comes together to fight one big threat is much more of a superhero movie kind of thing to do. And so, using a conception of visual space 
that allows you to do that also just makes sense. Yeah, because it is it is fun to have Dragon Balls show up to that party and be like, okay, well, 90% of superhero movies end with this like awful finale where it's just giant space lasers or whatever. You know, think like the end of WandaVision is one of those egregious right. examples of this, where it's like weird CG bullshit. Like the end of Batman v Superman is another good example where you're just like, I don't even know what's happening. It's just sort of, there's some <laughs> sort of like energy blasts are happening or something. Um, and it's just absolute garbage. And the Dragon Ball shows up as like, hey, 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 this is my gig. I know how to do this shit. Like, let me here. I'll frame it in the superhero way with the giant monster and all the team ups and all that kind of stuff. But I'll show you how you do the giant crazy beams and all of that and have it actually be awesome. Um, because most like Marvel or DC superhero movies that go for those big climaxes, it's just complete bullshit. And it's easily the worst parts of those movies. Whereas here, it's, you know, it's Dragon Ball doing it. Dragon Ball knows how to do that shit. It is amazing. I've been joking on Twitter that this is my new favorite superhero movie. Because it it's called Superhero. It's a superhero yes. movie. Uh, and, you know, if I were actually going to think about that, then I'd have to contend with, is this better than Spider-Man 2 or something? Um, it is definitely better than the vast fucking majority of superhero movies. Uh -huh, and I it agree. does... It puts basically everything marvel has ever made to utter and abject shame on the visuals and action department like and not even there i also think on a story level on a character dimension pacing it's just a really superior example of the genre and it is kind of like superhero movies come into play in dragon ball's wheelhouse and it knows what it's doing with this right uh, mm. and toriyama I think Toriyama has gotten, you know, he did not write Battle of Gods, but he did an extensive, like, rewrite and suggestions process on it. Resurrection F was his first movie script, and I think you feel that. That movie is very yeah. rough in plotting and pacing. But he's gotten better at it each time, and I think this one shows a lot of confidence with the form of a 100-minute movie. What do you do with it? And, yeah, this is just, you know, because then you also remember, oh, right, most modern superhero movies are inexplicably over two hours long. And this is a tight 100 minutes, and it does everything you could want it to do in those 100 minutes. Maybe even a little more, you know? Yes, no, absolutely. It's, it is a very confident-feeling production um, all around. Yeah. So do you want to go ahead and talk about the, the story and content with spoilers and everything from here on yeah. out? Yeah. All right. So I... It's it's kind of funny. The the thing that maybe gave me a little bit of pause going into this, because I was so excited about the Piccolo and Gohan and all of that, but I also knew this was another sort of Red Ribbon Army story. And I did wonder, oh, is this going to be one trip too many to that well? Because, you know, I would say Resurrection F is a good idea or a good example of going back to a particular well and not really finding anything in there, because Resurrection F, its only idea is... Frieza comes back and it never kind of mm -hmm. takes the next step. Uh, Super, I think, and Broly take that next step and do interesting things with Frieza, but I don't think the Resurrection F movie does. This is, you know, because we've had the Red Ribbon Army in Dragon Ball, then in Z there's the entire Android saga, which is an extension of the Red Ribbon Army stuff. And this is a really fun kind of connecting of both sides of that, of the kind of Dr. Garo, big Android side of it, and then the original Red Ribbon Army world domination plot thing. But I think it doesn't feel just like a loose retread. And I really liked the first 10 minutes of the movie where we learn, we meet Magenta and we see the entire, that there's red pharmaceuticals is like the upstanding business side of the uh -huh. Red Ribbon Army, which I think is a very funny plot point. And you have Dr. Hedo, who is just the most perfect Akira Toriyama character. I love him to death. He's a great character. And you meet Dr. Hedo and he, 
uh, is recruited by Magenta because Magenta spins him this story where he tells basically truthfully the story of Dragon Ball and Z, but frames it in such a way where it looks like Bulma is scheming with aliens to take over the world and appeals to Dr. Hedo's sense of like superheroics from comic books. That is such a great setup for this movie. I loved this from the first scene. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, that first 15 minutes or so in particular has a lot of really good kind of deeper Dragon Ball stuff going on. Like, if you're deeper into the Dragon Ball shit, there's lots of good little references and connective points. Because one thing that has always seemed really weird to me, and it's partially because, you know, the order I, you know, as as almost all, like, American, pe American people did with Dragon Ball, the order you consumed it in was Dragon Ball Z and then Dragon Ball, because that's the order it came out over here. So you... You know, the first time I encountered Red Ribbon Army stuff in the Dragon Ball franchise was through the Android Saga. And so I always, like, when the eventually Dragon Ball started airing and I started watching the original Dragon Ball stuff and you get to the Red Ribbon arc, it's like, where's Dr. Gara? Like, where are the, and I guess there's, you know, Android number eight, which is a Frankenstein joke. But there's no, like, like you don't have any of that stuff in it because it's Dragon Ball. And Dragon Ball doesn't actually give a shit about, like... Re real continuity in that way it was more just like a one-off sort of eh we can give a, a mild justification for why the androids exist once you do the z arc um and it makes more sense if you see it in that order rather than expecting there to be this richer backstory in the original series that is alluded to by the appearance of the androids in dragon ball z um but it has always been weird to me that there that there's no explanation for it. There's no explanation for, like, where was Dr. Gero? What the fuck was he doing? Like, what is any of that? Like, what was he doing when Goku was fucking shit up and killing all the, the Red Ribbon Army people? Because Goku definitely killed basically all of them. Um, <laughs> it was just, like, a weird gap in that continuity. And I like that this sort of takes the two versions of the Red Ribbon stuff. It takes the original Dragon Ball stuff with Magenta here. And then it takes all of the Android Saga stuff with Dr. Hedo. And it combines it together and creates a logic by which all those things intersected and coexisted in a way that Dragon Ball has never actually properly presented. And I thought that was like a satisfying little piece of sort of lore or whatever. That's like, okay, I can kind of fit these two misjointed puzzle pieces in the Dragon Ball universe that feel like they were supposed to fit, never actually fitted. And there's just like two lines of dialogue that you kind of go, oh, okay, now it, now it works. And now it feels like they kind of can coexist naturally in the timeline of the series. Yeah, I think that was fun. I think the sort of flashback recreations of various moments from the Dragon Ball sagas that we get throughout this movie, but especially at the beginning, which they do more in a sort of classical 2D style, are very mm -hmm. fun, look good, are kind of a glimpse into like, what if Dragon Ball was animated now? What would it look like? Um, I love that the movie just starts with, on a black screen, a Masako Nozawa doing a young Goku yell, like uh -huh. rushing the Red Ribbon Army. Um, yeah, all of that is good. And I think the characters, like... This movie really showcases Toriyama's ability to do just character writing mm -hmm. in a way that I think he's always been very good at. Because we have four major new characters here. We have Hedo, Magenta, and then um, Gamma 1 and 2. And all Don't of them feel... Don't forget about Carmine. Car oh, Carmine. We have five. Carmine is phenomenal. Yes. The greatest new Dragon Ball character, Carmine. <laughs> Carmine who he he steals the show right from the beginning because Carmine's joke is that he prepares the video packages for Magenta and he always does a Carmine production at the beginning and then we also see later on there's a but this movie is so great at filling the background with little details yes. 
it makes me excited to see it again. But you see later on, like, the end credits for one of Carmine's videos, and he's credited himself on every single one. So Carmine is, like, your stoic heavy, except that he is, like, an aspiring filmmaker, which is a phenomenal joke. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, that's great character writing. I think Magenta's whole deal, he is, I think, a very fun update of the Commander Red sort of stereotype. I like his whole thing, that his thing is sort of cigars. And then on the other side, you have Hedo with his Oreos and milk and soda. Um, and Hedo, of course, is a character with so many great characteristics. Um, and then Gamma 1 and 2, despite being uh, roughly identical as a visual design, are really distinguished through the performance and the writing and all of that. This is something that I think... The movies in particular, but also Super the TV series at various points, have done really well of introducing characters who don't just feel like they fit in the Dragon Ball universe, but feel essential now. Like, yes. Beerus and Whis are the most obvious examples of that, because we're never going to have Dragon Ball again without them. They're so, like, they just feel like they were always there. Um, but, you know, the Broly movie had the new version of Broly himself. It had Shilai and Limo, who show up again here and are great. And then this one, all these characters, like, I would be really bummed if we don't see Hedo and Gamma 2 again or something, you know? It's like all of that kind of stuff is so fun. Yeah, it is definitely, I think, the key distinguishing thing to me between Super and GT. Like, if, like, someone were to yeah. ask me, like, what is, like, the number one reason why Super is successful in a way that GT never really was... And I think it's fundamentally that, like, Super is able to pretty regularly supply new characters that feel, like, real to the world of Dragon Ball. In a way that, like, all the GT original characters and most of the GT original concepts felt totally alien. Like, the only character in GT to me that, like, felt like, oh, this is an essential Dragon Ball character is Pan. And that's, like, a little bit of a cheat because she is in Dragon Ball Z just very briefly at the very end. Um, it's also the same actress that plays Videl, so you kind of have, like, you know, there's a more Dragon Ball legacy just built into the DNA of that character. But all of, like, the villains and Baby and, like, Omega Shinron, like, that stuff's awful. Super Android 17, it's like, they're, none of them are particularly interesting or well-realized, and none of them feel essential or memorable or, like, vital parts of the franchise. And Dragon Ball Super has, like, a bunch of characters like that. Um, you know, because you've also got stuff like Cauliflet and, and Kale in the... Um, super TV show and stuff like that. And then, yeah, here, Hedo in particular, Hedo and the two androids, the Gammas, in particular feel like, oh, I want to see these characters again. You know, in the same way that when Broly and his gang pop up in the middle of this movie, while I think that that scene was a little bit too long for its own good and probably could have been cut down a little bit to be more focused, like, seeing those characters reminded me, oh, yeah, these characters feel like they're supposed to be here. Like, you're, you want to cut back to and see who these characters are and, like, what they're doing and what they're up to. And it's one of, like, the great successes of Super, and it continues in this movie, is that you get new characters that if we never saw Dr. Hedo in Gamma 1 again, I would be super bummed because they are awesome characters that you want to see go on more adventures. And I was really happy to see that they, like, got sort of grandfathered into a spot that makes them characters that you can revisit because they're in the capsule corporation uh, at the end of the movie and so it's like okay now they're they can we can revisit these characters and it feels appropriate and that's one of those things that helps dragon ball feel like a still living breathing franchise is it's not just mining exclusively classic characters and classic ideas it is also doing new stuff and giving us new interesting characters to play with I think, you know, rewatching it that's the thing that disappointed me most about Resurrection F when I yes. rewatched it is that like 
it's it's only idea is let's bring back Frieza. Mm-hmm. And it's fun to see Ryusei Nakao again and some of that stuff. But other than that, that movie doesn't contribute a lot. Whereas all these other ones, you know, like um, the, the Universe 6 versus Universe 7 arc, which was the first original arc in Super. You got Champa, you got Hit, you got the, uh, what was the alternate version of Frieza named? Um, uh chill is it? chill yeah yeah um I, but he was really fun you know they had a lot of things there with characters that you wanted to see come back and champa and beerus during the universe survival arc later was a ton of fun right um mm-hmm. and so it's just been very consistent at that i you know dragon ball should always be expanding a little bit even if you're gonna do callbacks and this movie is callback heavy and it's you know it is about the red ribbon army kind of coming back but it's in a forward-looking way it's with all new characters it's not like commander red somehow survived and we're doing that again we've you know successfully evolved and i think that's fun yeah i also just want to say maybe we can do a bigger section on on voice acting later but dr hedo um he's voiced by miu irino kind of steals the show in parts Mm -hmm. of this movie i think just a awesome awesome vocal performance and that one we can talk about the gammas who are they brought in two fucking heavies for them yeah but like yeah miu irino who i've seen in a couple of things just great here yeah, no, he's a great actor, and it's a great pick. I mean, Dr. Hedo is just so much fun. And you know what? I'd just like to, to get it out of the way for people who maybe don't know, because they didn't, like, try to translate it for the English version or whatever. There is a classic Dragon Ball pun with his name. So Dr. Garo. Uh, Garo is a word for, like, barf or throat, and so is Hedo. Hedo is a different word that also can mean, like, vomit. Um, so it is, it is the most disgusting of all of the Dragon Ball puns. And it's fun because... I don't think I ever even really associated Dr. Garo with that because there was no other character in his sphere that had that pun. Um, and so they have, I don't know if that was always an idea that Toriyama had, that that was why Dr. Garo is called Dr. Garo, or if that was like, well, we can make a pun retroactively out of his name now that we're making a new Dr. Garo related character. Um, and so they decided just like, it's they're going to load him up with the nastiest pun of all time. <laughs> Because that's the fun thing about Dragon Ball names is it's not just their puns, but their pun families. So yes. all the Saiyans are vegetables. All of the Sone family are different foods uh, or, or playing on the go, you know, and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, all of the gods like Beerus, Whis, and Champa are different alcohols, you know, beer, wine, and champagne. Just anything like that. And so now we have it for the Dr. Garo family, but it's for vomit. That's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fun. I also, I I love his like recurring line that he has that he says like the same way over and over and over again of like oh i have modified my skin to be able to withstand impacts of a certain degree of it's like such a specific line he read he does and he does it like identically like five times in the movie and every time he says it it made me crack up it's just like because it's so like there's something about the like oh to a certain degree i can if my skin can withstand very specific impacts um it's, it's very funny like yeah that, that character's yes. like bit I think is consistently really funny throughout the movie. And a lot of it is that you don't know, line deliveries are really, really sharp for gamma one and two, two things about them. One, they are some of my favorite Akira Toriyama designs ever. I don't know what it is. They look like he could have drawn them in the prime of Dragon Ball Z. They just yes. look so like, like maybe even like not Dragon Ball Z, but like Dragon Ball era or like some of the early Dragon Quest stuff. Like they are such cool Toriyama designs, but then Man, talk about getting some great guest stars in because they are voiced by Hiroshi Kamiya and Mamoru Miyano, two actors who, if you are new to Japanimation Station, maybe you haven't heard us talk about yet, but if you have listened to us for any length of time beyond that, you know we love these two. 
yeah. for a, the whole host of different things. Mamoru Miyano, we talked to death about with Gundam 00, but of course we love him from Persona 5 and Death Note and all sorts of things. And Hiroshi Kamiya, you named the best voice actor of the decade in 2019. Yes. So, yeah, and I love him as, like, Law in One Piece, uh, as the Penguin in Polar Bear Cafe. Mm-hmm. He's in a million different things. But what a joy to have them together in a Dragon Ball movie as these characters. That, it's so cool. Yeah, and it's just really good casting. Like, it's not just that they're, like, great voice actors, but I feel like they fit the characters so well. You know, that Hideshi Kamiya's Gamma 1 is, like, this much more stern, serious, like, you know, um, no jokes kind of uh, character. And then Miyano Mamoru's character is, like, kind of a little bit wackier and kind of bouncing off the wall and is very, like, showboaty. Um, And then, you know, he gets to sacrifice himself at the end of the movie um, and kind of be part of that big, like, emotional core and sort of be the the superhero at the end. But yeah, they're just really vibrant characters with really vibrant performances. And even though they don't have, like, particularly Gamma 1, doesn't have a huge amount of screen time. You know, this is a very tight movie. It's like 90 minutes. It's got a huge number of characters. Um, and obviously, it's got to, like, pay off all your Piccolo and Gohan stuff and all of that. So it's not like Gamma 1 and 2. You're not spending, like, 40 minutes of screen time on these characters. But they make such a strong impact with, like, the time that they do have. And it feels like, you know, they grow and change over the course of the movie in a very clear way. I like this idea of them, you know, being the kind of classically kind of misguided superhero character that then comes around at the end you know it's it's almost like a um classic superhero team up dynamic of the like misunderstanding between two groups of superhero type characters that then they have to realize at a certain point uh oh we're actually really on the same side every anytime two groups of superheroes encounter each other they have to fight over some misunderstanding and then team up later to fight some big bad and that's effectively the plot structure of the movie but it means you get this nice time with the gammas where they're your bad guys technically but you know that they're they've you know got a good heart and then you get to see them kind of recognize that and realize they're on the wrong side and turn against them um like it's just a very satisfying clear character arc um that's so sharply written with the very kind of efficient use of time in the plotting this movie has friends becoming or enemies becoming friends is one of my favorite like plot contrivances to begin Uh with Dragon Ball is built on the engine of enemies becoming friends from the very beginning. You know, Krillin is like Goku's rival, and then he's his best friend. And almost every major villain in Dragon Ball becomes a friend or an ally in some way at some point. And I think this movie is a really, really well done version of that in that Hedo is clearly never a bad guy like Dr. Garrow was. He's a little insensitive at the beginning of the movie, but he learns the error of his ways. And then Gamma 1 and 2 are very good and like i love that gamma 2's whole thing is that he really enthusiastically believes in his mission as a superhero yeah and like has a cool like kind of moral compass and he's misguided because he's been pointed in the wrong direction but he's very quick to catch on to things and the relate this is another one where just the background details are so good but in one of the big exposition scenes at the red ribbon army base where piccolo is like in disguise and kind of hanging out on the side of the room you just have throughout that scene gamma 2 annoying gamma 1 in the background by trying to do poses and trying to like just get him into the whole superhero thing and gamma 2 is the one i think possibly diegetically spitting out sound effects into the world because piccolo can see them um he, he has it, yeah in the background of one scene like this is one of those things you're talking about where 
or like there's so many good d details you can see in the background in one of those scenes that he is doing poses in the corner but you're seeing him from the back and so you see that the sound effects are like a hologram that's projecting out behind him so it's like you, yes. it, it only looks that way from like the right camera angle so as soon as the camera angle moves you, you can tell that it's like a hologram because the image distorts um and that i thought was an incredibly funny character detail yes you know so it's so sweet on that level and then of course when the turn comes at the end of the movie and gamma 2 sacrifices himself but also trusts gamma 1 to go save dr hedo and like help save the day and gamma 1 jumps into action right away it's it's sweet and it's even tear jerky at points you know when when piccolo says he was a superhero you know, and then Gamma 1 says back, and so were all of you. Yeah, I teared up a little bit. That's just a beautiful little moment. It's it's basic, but it's phenomenally well done, you know? I mean, it's just the thing of, like, the, you know, the movie doesn't have, like, these deep human themes that are going to make you question the world around you, right? It's got a very sort of simple action movie kind of storytelling approach, but it's so effective in that range of what it's trying to do. And it is about, like, those kind of, like, simple strong moral goods or whatever that that it gets to thematize around and the growth of the main characters all of whom you know particularly like like gohan and the gammas demonstrate like a lot of really strong character growth that you get to really play with by the end of the movie um and so yeah like it it is a really effective climax not because it's it's like the most original thing in the world but because it's just really well executed and, and the focus of the movie is so strong at developing those ideas that when you get to the end it i think it is very emotionally um effective and i also i i kind of do hope that they find you know it's dragon ball that they find a way to just bring gamma 2 back because i'd feel really bad for yano mamaru that he finally got a dragon ball role um because i know i've seen in like interviews that he always talks about that like dragon ball was like the thing that inspired him to be a voice actor as a kid um and so i just remember the, like i've seen like a couple of interviews with him where he has mentioned that and other things of it's just like oh please don't just kill off his character like come on you can it's dragon ball everyone comes back please bring gamma 2 back so he gets to be in more dragon ball stuff i think they can do it and you know even if not he did get this whole movie to himself yeah. it's better than what happened to poor kazuya nakai who was in resurrection f for like two minutes as one of the people who helps bring frieza back and then he gets killed by frieza uh and that feel felt like a poor use of the great voice actor kazuya nakai uh -huh. finally getting to come into dragon ball uh mamaru miyano got a uh, an extremely memorable turn in one of the best dragon ball movies so that is something to be proud of and yeah it's you know as you say it is not you know this is not showa this is not questioning you know the the nature of human existence and morality um but it doesn't need to that's not what it's yeah. trying to be and i would love you to point me to a not you but anyone a 99 minute this is a 99 minute movie point me to an american superhero movie that is 99 minutes and is this good at the basics of the genre you know mm -hmm. uh you can't now this movie has a bit of a leg up because we know most of the characters but even still it's you know a lot of new stuff um and it's very very efficient on that level but let's go back and talk about the existing characters, Sean, because this is a Piccolo movie, essentially. Yes. This is, and, and like, not just like, 
you know, we, we, we talked about with the Broly movie that Broly is effectively the protagonist of the Broly movie, but it's not quite as clear cut because you still have Goku and Vegeta, you know, in it a lot. Broly doesn't, you know, talk a whole lot. His agency isn't, you know, 100% there. It's sort of like talking about like, you know, who's the protagonist of Avengers Infinity War, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's basically um, Thanos. But of course you can kind of debate it. This movie is Piccolo is the main character. He's in yes. every scene. He's our POV. Um and he's fantastic. I love the early section where we just see like Piccolo's daily life, where he has this little house out in the plains somewhere where he can go and meditate on a mountain. And he has a little cell phone that clearly Go- Gohan and Videl gave him because he did not choose that case. Every uh, time he, he holds the cell phone, he dangles it from the top like it's like a bag of poop or something. That he's just like, yes. get this away from me. Um, I love that. I know. He has no idea how to control a cell phone. No, um, but he has his little cell phone because they call him to pick up Videl and he is training Videl and he is, uh, he's the best Dragon Ball dad as we've always known. Um, and he's basically been adopted into their family. He is part of Son Gohan's family and he is basically like an uncle or something to, to Pan. Um, and, you know, Videl and Gohan both rely on him. Uh, and he's a little fed up with that they're kind of a little too absentee and relying on him too much. Um, but one of the great little details there is that they bring back the detail that Namekians don't eat. They just drink water. Yes. And so I love that Pan knows that. Because Pan, one of the first shots of her is giving him a mineral water, which is a great little shot. And and Piccolo drinks the mineral water. And then later on, Fidel on the phone says, hey, if you, if you pick up Pan, I'll get you something tasty. And he says, I only drink water. And she says, oh, okay, we'll get you another Nuigurumi, another, like, you know, stuffed animal, basically. Yeah. And then you see they've been giving him all these stuffed animals, and Piccolo doesn't necessarily care about them but he doesn't throw them away either so he just has a pile of them in his house that is one of the best little character details i think i've ever seen in a movie to tell you about where someone is at it's really well done yeah it's amazing like that whole opening stretch once you you cut to piccolo and and see his life and him training pan you set up one that pan can't fly yet which is a great payoff for the end of the movie which he does learn how to fly but yeah, I love seeing Piccolo's little setup. I love that he's got this, like, it's just an empty room with a chair, like a throne-style yes. chair. That is it looks almost... like King Piccolo's chair. Yeah, yes, like throne. I think it is meant to be, like, evocative of Demon King Piccolo to a certain extent, which I think is very fun. Um, he's got his chair, and then he's got, like, a little table or something in the corner with all the stuffed animals. And as you say, it's like a very telling character detail that he doesn't know what to do with them. He doesn't care about them. He doesn't particularly want them. But he's not going to get rid of them because they're present from Gohan and Gohan's family, right? And so it's like you have that the sentimentality that Piccolo has, even with his, like, sort of gruff exterior. Um, and then he also has a big plateau mountain to go meditate on top of right by where his house is, which is, of course, what... I have to imagine that there's somewhere near the vicinity there's a giant waterfall also that he can meditate under if sometimes that's what he wants to do is meditate under a waterfall instead of on top of a giant plateau um which is I I just love like it's it's a it's one of those things about super in particular as a like a part of the Dragon Ball franchise that has always been very fun and again is the thing that has distinguished it from GT is that it is very good at capturing these little moments of life with these characters and some of my favorite episodes of the super TV show were the episodes that were just like Goku's got to farm this field, you know, like he's got to figure out how to do that. You know, here's them doing a dumb baseball game. Here's, 
you know, running some errands. It's just like the, the kind of Dragon Ball does slice of life, which super gives itself space to do every now and then is some of the most satisfying stuff with it because these characters are so fun and we have so much connection to them. Um, and even if obviously this movie is not just a movie of that stuff, it like Battle of Gods, which also had a lot of that stuff, like it finds the space to just give us windows into the lives of these characters and just spend some time with them. And it's some of the most fun stuff in this movie. If you're a Dragon Ball fan, if you're you know not a Dragon Ball fan, I don't know why you chose to go see the movie. Um, but if you're a fan of the characters already, like you just like eat up all this like stuff of getting to see the homes of these characters and what they do on their kind of day off. Yes, my favorite one of those in the Super TV series was, it's in the first episode, which is also where Goku is plowing the field, is it's Gohan and Videl out kind of on a date, and they're at a bookstore, and she buys him the Muzuka Shihon, which is a joke. Uh -huh. As an academic, I make all the time. I love that Gohan, because Videl is like, you got this book you were looking for, and the book literally says on the cover, I think in Roman letters, Muzuka Shihon, which just means difficult book, and yeah. I think that is one of the best jokes in Dragon Ball, is the Muzuka Shihon. And it's a little story about how Gohan feels... Like, he can't give Videl back as much as she gives him because she comes from this rich family, but then they come to an understanding. It's a very sweet little story, as most Gohan and Videl stuff is, because it's a surprisingly good romance from an author who doesn't do romance that well. Um, you're getting an Amber Alert there in Texas, yes. it seems like. So, yeah. just so people know, um, <laughs> the Sean's fire alarm is not going off. No. But anyway, um, you know, I love that in Super. I think here... You know, the other thing about the way they characterize Piccolo here is I like the feeling that, you know, Gohan and Videl are not being bad parents or anything, but they have their own lives and Piccolo kind of is the retired guy, right? He's the grandpa. He is, he feels a little bit like the world I think has passed him by. There's that moment where Pan says, you fought grandpa once, right? And he has to go, grandpa? Oh, you mean Son. Like, because he's like, yeah. oh, right, your grandpa is Goku. This makes me feel old. And I think one of the most special things about this whole movie is Toshio Furukawa's performance as Piccolo. We love Furukawa, one of our favorites in a bunch of different shows, um, including, you know, in, in Gundam, he is Kai Shiden. And we just talked about him with the Mobile Suit Gundam Kukuru's Doan's Island movie. And he's great in that. And he can, he's an old man, he can still effectively play a teenager, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in this movie, I think he does something really interesting in that I think he intentionally leans into his voice sounding older. I think he makes Piccolo sound older and that Piccolo is just a little more advanced than the other characters. And that is a character dynamic and him kind of like getting back into the swing of things, but also kind of teaching the youngins. And I, I don't know if I can point to many anime where a character, where an actor who is that much older, who's played a character for this long, really gets to like just play the age a little bit. And I think it's really special. And I, I think it's some one of the reasons why you've got to see this in Japanese, because it's a very unique thing to this movie that makes it so wonderful to me yeah i mean it's just a thing where most anime series don't have the characters age that much right like usually it's something where you'll have your like Draymon or lupin the third and stuff like that where or like detective conan where the same actors have been playing those characters for decades um and then eventually with some of those like lupin the third you then get like new actors come in uh when old actors pass away which happened recently um, and stuff like that um but typically like those you know lupin the third is lupin the third he has been since the fucking 60s he will always be like in his like late 20s or something maybe early 30s like that is just the age it's of that like character. the simpsons in the united states right the exactly. simpsons are always the simpsons even if time moves on 
Yeah, but um, with Dragon Ball, like, the timeline has moved a lot, right? I mean, Goku's gotta be, what, like, in his early 50s, maybe, at this point? He's a grandfather. Um, You know, he's a grandfather who had a kid when he was very young, and his kid had a kid when he was young. You know, so it's like, he, he's not gonna be, like, 80 or something. But, like, he's, you know, he's getting up there in years, and Piccolo... You know, I don't know how Namekian's age. Obviously, he's not like a giant, like wrinkled eggplant or whatever, which we've seen very, very old Namekians that have a very a certain look to them. Like he doesn't look like Kami did in original Dragon Ball, but like he, you know, he's definitely getting up there in years, and he is old. Um, and he and he is like a surrogate grandfather type figure to Pan. If he is a surrogate father figure to Gohan, that's like kind of his relationship with Pan. Um, and so. Yeah, like it is a thing where the story gives Furukawa space to play that age. And I do think I'm with you that that it is an intentional thing that the movie is kind of leaning into. Because I think part of the like piccoloness of the movie that's very fun is that there's a little bit of a like a, you know, action movie cliche of like the retired cop that gets pulled back in for <laughs> one last job kind of thing of like, can I still do this? Like, am I still that man? Can I like, you know, Goku and Vegeta aren't here can I, you know, be the person on the front lines doing these this fight? Um, and it kind of, like, you know, puts a pet back into his step, you know? Um, and, and then he gets his whole crazy new orange piccolo form and all that crazy shit happens. But, like, that dynamic is very satisfying to see that age of Piccolo be played and then Piccolo kind of, like, getting his groove back, basically, over the course of the movie. Yeah, it's it's so fun. Him and Young Pan is the is like criminally adorable, right? Yes. Like, and part of that is uh, one. I was overjoyed with how much Young Pan we get because Pan mm -hmm. is a great underused Dragon Ball character, and we really get to know her here. And it is still Yuko Minaguchi, um, who has played Videl since since the character was introduced in Z. Uh, there was a brief period where Yuko Minaguchi almost left the franchise. This was during Kai. When Daisuke Gori passed away, she said she wasn't sure, because uh, Daisuke Gori played Mr. Satan, who is yeah. her father on the show, and she wasn't sure if she wanted to keep doing it without him. Uh, and she actually did not voice Videl on the Boo arc of Kai, the Kai, the final chapters that they finally produced. But she did come back for Battle of Gods, because I think Battle of Gods clearly like gave the character more to do. It, it's a small role, but she has that there. And then on Super, and then here, and now she is, she's also always voiced Pan, and now she gets to do something that we've really never seen, which is the three-year-old little kid version of Pan. Her voice for Pan, again, criminally adorable. It is yeah. such a good vocal performance. It put the biggest smile on my face. I've always loved her as Videl and as Pan. And it is so cool to get to see her play this kind of like full-throated Toriyama-inflected incarnation of the character. Opposite Piccolo, opposite Toshio Furukawa. Uh, what an absolute utter joy. Yeah, it's, it's so great you know it's it's like it's it's one of the best things about the movie moving the timeline forward which i love i'm glad that especially since it's been years since super broly that that we are now you know i don't think we're not yet at the like epilogue or whatever from the original manga slash the tv show for z but we're much closer to that point in the timeline and pan is a little bit is several years older so she gets to talk and be a more active character um yeah and yuka minaguchi has always been amazing as both fidel and as Pan, um, the the most like both the best and most frustrating thing in Dragon Ball GT is that Pan is awesome and that GT doesn't know it. Um, that Yuka Miyaguchi is awesome as Pan and GT doesn't know doesn't have any good material to give her past a certain point. 
Um, and so, yes, it's it's so gratifying to have um, Pan here and like as the natural character. And one of my favorite moments in the movie is all the stuff at the end with her learning how to fr- fly. One of my favorite shots in the movie is the yes. POV shot from Pan's perspective as she's flying past all the other characters and then straight into Gohan and then flying up. Like what an a, amazing shot that like really like there's a lot of stuff in this movie that like hit me particularly hard in like a nostalgic kind of way because you know again if you're american like you you started with dragon ball with gohan and so like the gohan piccolo thing is like deep in my like roots is like the core of what dragon ball is in many ways and like gohan is like the character i most deeply identify with because it is what i grew up with and so getting all of this it's like for me the most emotional uh thing in dragon ball super is the episode in the trunks arc where trunks future trunks sees like it's to spend like a day with our gohan and see that this version of gohan get to live a happy life and like there's something about that that hits me really hard um and there's a lot of that kind of stuff in this where you get to see gohan sort of try having to learn you know to be a more attentive father you know he maybe learned some bad lessons from goku in that regard <laughs> where for gohan it's studying whereas for goku it was fighting um and and but that the really loving relationship he has with pan getting to see that and see that you know once gohan has to move into action like he's there 100 percent, all of that that mix of stuff for the movie is really powerful and pan is like a really powerful focusing mechanism for all of those kinds of emotions i think i agree with all of that that shot at the end of pan flying if the rest of the movies like 3d visuals had been crap it would be worth it for the shot of her flying, which is a purely 3D. You have to do that with a digital virtual camera, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it's beautifully done. And I, I so agree with you about Gohan because Gohan has always been my, like, I don't, favorite's almost the wrong word. He is Dragon Ball to me in a weird way because I know Dragon Ball, we also start with young Goku and see him grow up. But I think because Goku is the eternal child, it's a little different. I think mm-hmm. watching Gohan be a kid the inciting incident of Dragon Ball Z is him getting kidnapped and just watching Gohan's maturation from that point to the end of the cell arc and then you know there have been varying opinions on this over the years and I think you know different stories after Z have kind of helped smooth it out but I've always liked that Gohan doesn't become Goku number two when we get to the Buu arc I think the idea that Gohan lives his own life is good and I think this movie in particular finds a really nice way of kind of threading the needle of that Gohan living his own life doesn't have to just mean he never fights it also doesn't mean that he's only a scholar it's that he is different than Goku because he can be a better father and he can have his like job and he can be a fighter and he can do all these things and he can learn from the mistakes of his father he can learn good lessons from his other father figure in Piccolo and I think the character is just so unique on that level. Masako Nozawa has always done, I think, you know, her performance as Goku is one thing. I think in some ways her performance as Gohan is even more impressive in a lot of areas mm-hmm. of the series. Um, and this movie is actually a good example of it. But yeah, I love all of that about it. Um, and, you know, just seeing how much Pan loves her dad is adorable. Uh, I did look it up, by the way, Sean, and Pan is four years old at the time of the uh, uh, Tenkaichi Budokai that ends Dragon Ball Z. So here we are about a year from the end of Z. So I feel like whenever we pick up with Super Next, they're going to have to confront the point in the timeline where the end of Z happens and then it's time to rewrite Dragon Ball GT, basically. Yes. You know? 
<laughs> yeah, so uh, maybe the next movie can just be Dragon Ball Super Oob. I actually think that's not a bad idea for a movie. Anyway. Dragon uh, Ball Super. There you go. <laughs> that's a free title for you, Toei. But yeah, so I don't even know where we were. But let's talk about the scene where Piccolo goes to visit Gohan at his house. Yes. And I love that Piccolo knows not to use the front door because he knows where Gohan is. He's in his study and he's doing his work. And Gohan's really happy to see Piccolo, but he's completely obsessed with his work. And the joke, and God, the way Mosko Nozawa does this line is so funny, of, I'm studying this beetle. At this point in the year, it turns yellow and glows. It's like a super saiyan. And Piccolo yeah. is like, this is what you're doing? I laughed so hard at that. Again, Gohan, as as an academic myself, I feel like Gohan is kind of my my spiritual character in Dragon Ball, and I love that moment so much. Yeah, it is. It, you know, it's it's such a kind of like trivial thing, but on, that he's studying, but also when <laughs> the you know it's you know hey, biology is is important and zoology is interesting. Um, but yes, like that whole conversation between Piccolo and Gohan is great. I love that Piccolo like scrapes his like weird long Namekian fingernails on the window. <laughs> Um, to get Gohan's attention, which he does twice in the movie. Um, and, and yeah, that whole conversation about, like, Gohan, you need to train more in him, like, magicking up the classic Piccolo set of clothes on him so that Gohan is, like, sitting there studying with the big fucking cape and the shoulder pads and stuff <laughs> and everything is great. Yes. Um, yeah, but there is a... Like, Piccolo and Gohan's relationship, I just think, is so interesting because... You know, Gohan, I think it still does very much see Piccolo as a father figure still. And, and you know, there's a that sort of promptness with which he always replies to Piccolo when, like, Piccolo is talking to him. Like, Gohan's always, like, height, and he's speaking in honorific. And it's like there's a very, like, attentive quality to him. Um, but also he's much more mature, right? And so I think they're like a little bit more able to talk on equal footing. And there's something about like the nuances of the way the dialogue is written between them that I love, that it really feels like like a father talking to their adult son. Like, and that is the kind of, that have like a really loving relationship with each other, but that they, you know, have both kind of like grown and, and are moving in different paths in their lives. And they're not necessarily living together or seeing each other all the time. Um, like they're, they're, they're really well written in that way to capture that specific quality of their relationship. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. The, the depth of the character writing there is so rewarding to see that it's just one of those relationships that you feel the weight of its many years existence when it's happening, yeah. you know? Um, and this is also where we have to talk about Masako Nozawa. Mm -hmm. I, we have spent probably hours across our various podcasts singing her praises. We always will. One of the most impressive things she's ever done, I think, is the differentiation between Goku and Gohan in the series. Um, in that she has a little kid Goku voice and a little kid Gohan voice. And they're easily separable. You can easily tell which one is which. And even more impressively, adult Gohan, which, you know, up until the super era she'd only done for, you know, the last hundred episodes of Z is such a interesting take off of Goku in that it's extremely distinct. You can have your eyes closed and you will always know adult Gohan from adult Goku. Mm -hmm. And I think this movie puts really good use to that of, because she's only Goku for a couple minutes in this movie, the, her main performance in this film is as adult Gohan. And it's really cool to see her get to stretch her legs in that role. And I just love the like 
there's a little bit of like sheepishness to adult Gohan. He's a little shyer. He's obviously much more polite. His speaking style is very different than Goku. He's not the person who comes up and says, Oh, Ora Goku, you know? Yeah. He will answer Piccolo with a hi, which is something that Goku never says, right? Um, and all of that stuff. But it's just, it's such a loving performance when he's with Pan. You have all of what you're talking about of opposite Piccolo, the depth of that relationship, um, you know, when it gets into the big battle stuff. She is just so well attuned to the differences in these characters, even if it is all her voice. You know, Masako Nozawa is 85 years old. I know she will not be with us forever. And I just want to say it as many times as we can while she's still here. I don't think there has ever been a better person at this craft than Masako Nozawa. And this is another example uh, of that feather in her cap. Yeah, it is, it is like, it's one of those things that's kind of unbelievable. Because it's not as if she's doing crazy stuff with her voice you know she's not like you know making a completely different sounding voice she's still very much within her like natural sounding register um yeah. as a person you know you can tell us masaka nozawa like it, and it's true of like any role she plays she's not a, the kind of actress that like transforms her voice for these kinds of roles which you will get sometimes with actors particularly if they're playing two of the same character two characters in the same series um but yeah she is is able to hold a conversation between three different sewn characters goku gohan and goten and you can tell all of them and then in this movie she has to pull out a like teen goten that's which is a voice she hasn't had to do in a long time and when that happened i was like oh right yeah this is how like an older goten sounds that's right and like you can tell the difference even though she's not totally trying to transform her voice or anything and so much of it is just in like the subtleties of the the ways that the character talks um which some of that is in the writing obviously like the specific words they say but it's also just like the way that they kind of carry themselves through their voice that she's able to make very clear and um yeah i'm with you that it's very gratifying to see her get to do so much with adult gohan which we just haven't gotten this much focus on All right we've gotten quite a bit of adult, of adult gohan in dragon ball super particularly in the universe um the, the the survival arc at the end of super there's a decent amount of adult gohan stuff but it's always sort of having to share all this other time with so many other different subplots in the tv show that getting this like really concentrated dose of that character and just get to kind of really live with that performance for 90 minutes is very very fun i think you can feel that like as an actor it's probably more of a challenge because mm -hmm. I think she can do Goku in her sleep. I think, yes. like, Masako Nozawa can do Goku the same way she can probably breathe. And I think one of the great things about her Goku is she clearly takes such joy in that, you know? It's almost an alter ego at this point. But when it's Gohan, like, we're not, you know, she probably does voice work for Goku every week of the year for something different, oh, right? it has to be, yeah. Yeah, you know, but adult Gohan isn't that kind of thing. And so it's it's really like, okay, where is this person's head at? Where are they in this relationship versus this relationship? There's like a lot of actorly choices being made there that are a lot of fun to hear. And when you're opposite, you know, Toshio Furukawa, you know, you've just got two of the all-time greats in a room doing a role that has, at this point, almost 40 years of history behind it. Where yeah. else are you going to see that? It's so cool. Yeah, so yeah, and that's like just so much of that weight of the history is present in some of those big moments between those two characters that it's very, yeah. very powerful. And again, I love the thing about uh, the beetle uh, that Gohan is investigating. There is, I don't know if, if you've ever seen this, Sean. There was the, uh, it was it was 
only ever a game in Korea and China, but there was a game called Dragon Ball Online, which was mm-hmm. a Dragon Ball MMO, and Toriyama did contribute to Dragon Ball Online an almost like Lord of the Rings appendix-style timeline of yeah. events after Z. And if you've never read it, go find that timeline, because it's actually really cool, and I love a lot of the ideas in it. And one of them is that Gohan, as a scholar, his big project becomes teaching the people of Earth how to control their key. And in the world of Dragon Ball Online, this is the thing that allows you to have an MMO where everyone is flying. Um, But I almost, I love, I can kind of imagine coming out of this movie a version of Gohan's life where he combines his training and his scholarship and does something like that. That would be really cool if they ever want to do a story with that in Dragon Ball. I'd love to see that. Yeah, that would be interesting if they, they wanted to push further into like Gohan's like scholarly scholarly side impacting the rest of the story you know yeah anyway but Gohan is great uh and then you know the plot from there is Piccolo is like well this kid's a lost cause uh for the for the for the time being so I'm gonna go investigate the Red Ribbon Army and the first big step of that is summoning the dragon and we get another appearance by Dende who did we ever see Dende in the TV series Dragon Ball Super he's in Battle of Gods I'm pretty sure Dende popped up once or twice yeah yeah He's a pretty rare appearance these days, but I always love seeing Dende, um, and I love... So we do get another dragon summon here. I do appreciate that all four modern Dragon Ball movies have had a summoning of the dragon, because yes. there are stretches of Dragon Ball where the Dragon Balls are not a thing. I like that all four movies have had a wish, which is very funny to me. Um, and this one involves Piccolo asking Dende if he can make the dragon stronger, and this is Toriyama taking a chance to kind of humorously deal with a continuity error, which is that the dragon after the cell arc can alternately do two or three wishes depending on what point in the story they're Uh, at and i love that it's just dende going like oh yeah i can change it whenever i want like you know kami he hadn't been to namek in forever he didn't remember how to do it all but i'm a namekian i know what i'm doing and he has the weird like water he does and all of that i thought that was a very funny just let me get this super holy water out uh (laughs) and pour the super holy water on the dragon statue uh and we're good to go I would say that was a reference, if not for the fact that I am 100% certain that Akira Toriyama does not even know about the Garlic Jr. arc of Dragon Ball Z. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's what we are referencing there. Uh, Because if you don't know about that arc, you're better off. Um, Anyway, so we do get the dragon summoning. We get Bulma there for that scene. The dragon successfully draws out Piccolo's power, gives him a little something extra. I love a saucy version of the dragon who's just giving out freebies that's very funny to me yeah i do really love like you know the the peacetime of super feels like it has affected the dragon as well as all the other characters that you know <laughs> that that bulma is regularly summoning the dragon for like trivial bulma-esque wishes um which i love the idea of it is like to keep them dormant so that it doesn't attract uh like frieza or whoever else to come get the dragon balls which is like a legitimately really smart idea like i was kind of like oh that makes so much sense yeah (laughs) you should just be constantly using the dragon balls so they're constantly stones so that way there's like no reason for evil aliens or whoever robot people whatever to show up and try to get your dragon balls because it's like hey they're you gotta wait a fucking year man like get in line um it's a it's a perfectly bulma plot point and it's very smart 
and it's Bulma using her resources like materially and of her brain because it's a soup it's like no one else in Dragon Ball is smart enough to do that but then she uses it for a completely um vain end which to be fair like her her wish in Dragon Ball originally was either for a boyfriend or a lifetime supply of strawberries so she has always made these kind of wishes on the dragon and that is very funny to me I mean, it's it's the eternal joke of Dragon Ball is that, like, the only thing that people typically use the Dragon Ball, Dragon for is, like, totally trivial bullshit, you know? <laughs> I mean, it goes yes. back to the original Red Ribbon Saga, too. Um, yeah, that, so, but that, yeah, that whole dynamic and that idea of using the dragon um, that way is very fun. And I just like the dragon has this, <laughs> this very, like, casual back and forth with Piccolo. It's like, oh, Lord Piccolo, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> it's like, oh, I'll throw in a little something extra for you there, buddy. Um, and then, like, he just so casually grants the wishes that Bulma says, like, without it being like a, and I want you to make my eyelashes two millimeters long, whatever she says. She's just sort of, like, chatting, and he's like, okay, yeah, I can do that. Brr, and his eyes glow. <laughs> I love it. I love that the dragon just, like, doesn't give a fuck anymore. He is the most overqualified plastic surgeon on Earth. Yes. And that is his entire affect. Um, no, I love that. They also do something with the dragon that I feel like is unique to 3D because I think in hand-drawn animation you're not going to do this as much. He's constantly moving uh -huh. while he's granting wishes, kind of like you see a Chinese dragon often move in art and stuff. And that's just a little detail I love that they threw in there. He's a little more active as a physical presence. That was cool. Yes, yeah, because he's usually kind of in that very kind of static, curled pose in the sky. Because yeah. yes, it would, it, he's, a, he's a very, very detailed creature design, so it would be very expensive, certainly on a TV show, to try to get that thing moving constantly. <laughs> yes, exactly. So then we have Piccolo's entire undercover investigation of the Red Ribbon Army, uh, which is wonderful. Piccolo in disguise, Piccolo wearing... Like, how often have we... How many actual costumes has Piccolo been in in Dragon Ball? Because it's like... His, like, original evil gi, his, like, training gi with Gohan, the one episode where he got his driver's license, yeah, and then I feel saying. like this one with the Red Ribbon Army stuff, and it's just fun to see him in another costume. <laughs> yes, finally, the Dragon Ball video games have a new outfit they can put Piccolo in. It's like, yes, we can get, let's, let's get up another one, boys. We've got to make a new Dragon Ball game. We've got, like, three new characters and a new Piccolo outfit. Let's go, go, go. Indeed. We need Dragon Ball Fighters 2 or whatever they're going to do with that next. Yes. Dragon um, Ball. It's finally time to make a Dragon Ball's Universe 3, guys, because we got another movie. We can get some more out. Um, <laughs> it actually has been a while since Universe 2, if they want to do more of that. But anyway, yeah, I, I love that whole section. I love the entire idea of, like, it's also like, if Piccolo were the, you know, if Goku is the protagonist of the movie, he's just going to fly in there and punch people, right? Yes, as, I love as he did to the Red Ribbon Army once upon a time. <laughs> Yes, he did. And Piccolo is, I'm going to go do some subterfuge and learn about things. And it means that the whole, like, shape of the movie is shaped around Piccolo as a protagonist and yes. the kind of choices he would make. And that's awesome. Yeah, like, he, I love that you get to follow him along as he's sort of trying to craft these plans of trying to contact Whis. He goes and gets the Sinzu beans, right? So, that, like, Korinsama and, and Yajirobe get a little cameo. Um, because Yajirobe's got to show up somewhere, somehow, in a Dragon Ball thing. Um and you know he's 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 got his whole like sort of little plan that he's working on and these like you know sub plans and stuff like that and he's always working on uh ideas and yes it's a very different approach than goku who certainly Go goku is a lot of things the man with the plan is not one of them i loved yajirobe's appearance because even though he doesn't have any lines i could tell it was uh mayumi tanaka doing the eating voice 
uh-huh. of Yajirobe because she is in the movie as Krillin, so she's there. Um, and I just you could tell they they like at the end of the session were like, and can you just like eat something into the mic for a minute here for Yajirobe? It's like, oh sure, that yeah. was very funny. Um, we should probably mention. Do you want to mention the scene that kind of comes in the middle of all this where we do go off to Beerus's planet? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a thing where I I think if I were to identify one weakness in the movie for me it would be this scene goes on too long it feels too I, much yes. of a fan service thing which I appreciate like I like getting to see um, Goku and Vegeta and Beerus and Whis and I particularly like the idea of the Broly crew being on Beerus's planet um, like I think all that's super fun but also it's like a probably like a five to ten minute scene that needed to be like a minute. That all it's there to do, really, in the plot, is to establish why Goku and Vegeta are not involved on Earth. And you can... That scene establishes that very quickly, and then it just keeps on going. And it's, it's like, for such a tight movie, that's the only place where there's, like, a bunch of fat on the film. Yeah, I agree. I think in my heart of hearts, I would have just not had Goku and Vegeta in this movie. And I think I would have had, like, Piccolo can't reach them, and then the end credits scene would have been, like we cut away to Beerus's planet and do a smaller version of this scene. Um, but I, it's still like, I like everything in the scene. Like every yeah. beat of it is fun. I, I love the general evolution of Beerus where like, he is still a fearsome person. He is still extremely powerful. There's the scene in super where he kills uh, Zamasu that, you know, he's terrifying when he wants to be, but like Beerus genuinely enjoys the company of Goku and his friends. Uh-huh. And like, I feel like he would be he would sooner protect Goku than he would destroy Goku at this point, right? He's never going to say that, but like Beerus kind of likes this whole entourage he's got up on his planet that gives him food and ice cream and stuff. And Whis, I think, enjoys having people to train. And then, of course, there's the joke here where Beerus, uh, where Beerus has a crush on Shilai, who is one of Broly's friends, and that is very funny. Um, I like, yeah, I like seeing Broly's crew. I think the other thing this scene is there for is like we haven't had Dragon Ball in four years. So uh it would be, even though I think the movie itself would be stronger with less of this, for Dragon Ball fans, you want to know, hey, what's happening with Broly? Are Goku and Vegeta still working on this and that? And I think like having that check-in does make sense on that level. And again, it is a fun scene. And when Goku and Vegeta start their sparring match, it's a legitimately great fight scene. And I think particularly because Whis tells them no transformations, no key beams... It's just a big hand-to-hand martial arts fight with Goku and Vegeta. That's a lot of fun. I will always take that. Uh, but I agree with you. It's The movie has such good pacing and momentum. Otherwise, this is the scene that feels a little too long. Yeah, like I like the scene. But I think it could have been like, uh, here's a fun bonus on like the Blu-ray. Or like, here's like a YouTube video we put up to promote the movie or something. Like, and here's like, here's what Goku and Vegeta were doing during the events of Super Superhero. And you just have like one minute or something of it in the movie that is just the quick cutaway where you see, oh, this is why they can't be, you know, they're occupied and we can't get the message from Bulma. Because obviously you need to address why they're not there. You just don't need to spend a lot of time on it. Um, But to talk about that actual sequence, yeah, I'm totally with you that I love all the dynamics of it. Getting Beerus in anything is always super fun. (laughs) Um, You know, Koichi is just one of the great voice actors in Japan. And it's like his performance of Beerus is amazing. Um, I adore the idea that he's got this dumb little crush on Chi-Lai. Um, that's, that's like very innocent, you know, there's like nothing like untoward about it. It's just, I love, like, I love how it starts. It's just this, like that kind of soft filter that you get a POV look of him looking at Chi-Lai and there's like a soft filter on it. And then it just cuts to that wide shot where he just says, 
hey, you're cute. He just says, oh, kawaii. And that's it. Uh, <laughs> they just like, and then later she's like, oh, I'll go get the ice cream. He's like, hey, I'll come help you out. Like, he's like a 13-year-old boy or something. With yes. Crush on the girl at school. It's very funny. Um, and who, it's, you know, she's a Mizuki Nana character. Who wouldn't have a, car, a crush on Chi-Lai? Um, but I also, I love Broly's dynamic in the scene. I love that, like, it, you get intro to this sequence of Goku and Broly, like, just about to star. And then Broly starts getting worked up and Goku's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, let's back up. Let's just, like, it's a, <laughs> it's a very unique moment for Goku where he's like, let's not fight right now. Let's calm down, okay? Because when you lose your temper, you're going to blow up the entire fucking planet. Um, and I love the idea that he, you know, it's been a couple of years and that, like, he and Goku and Broly and Vegeta and all of them are have like this sort of friendship that's extended from that kind of last that great last scene from the Broly movie where Goku introduces himself as Kakarot right and all that and it feels like really natural that Broly is kind of a part of that group now and it's one of those things that I hope this is like a sort of nod towards the next Dragon Ball whatever if they do another TV show they do a movie whatever they're doing um, that this will be part of the dynamic because it's something we talked about, I know, on our Broly podcast when we thought that there would be more Dragon Ball sooner. That, like, these are characters that shouldn't just be the characters that were from this one movie and you never saw them again. They're characters like Beerus and Whis that should keep coming back. And it's very satisfying that even if it's only a little bit in the movie, that this feels like clear intent that those characters are around to, like, stay. And they're not just one-offs. Um, and that was, if anything I got from that scene, that was the thing that made me happiest was getting confirmation that they are not just sort of like abandoning those characters and that they're going to keep them around. Indeed. And of course with Chilai and Limo too, and Chilai yes. has the thing with Beerus. She also has the thing where she clearly went and robbed Beerus's house. <laughs> yes. <and> took... <laughs> While he was sleeping for four months or whatever. Yeah. And, and is only saved because Beerus thinks she's cute and probably also doesn't care about material possessions because he's the God of destruction. Um, but that's very funny. Uh, and then I love that Limo has, like, found himself as the chef for Beerus and Weiss. And, like, he loves doing that. And they love having him for that. And it's just like, hey, he found a good role in life. And I love that for Limo. I think he's a... He clearly... The older dude, he he needed a break. I think this is good for him. Yeah. But he also... I like that he is, like, clearly scared shitless of Beerus the entire time. <laughs> um, like, yes. he has fun cooking. He's happy to do it. But he's, like, the... I think the only one of them to fully appreciate that, like, at any given moment, if Beerus wanted to, he could just disintegrate all of them. I mean, he's, yeah, like, that whole dynamic, there's all those characters from Broly were so much fun, um, and it's really cool to just get them more screen time and have them bouncing off of, like, the, the other cast from Super. Yeah, and I think Goku being the one to, like, calm down Broly in that fight is good. It's a callback to the moment in the Broly movie yeah. where Goku tries to like de-escalate and calm Broly down and he very nearly does it um because Goku is good at kind of reading people in that way um and I like that he's kind of still on that path uh I like Broly when he's watching Goku and Vegeta fight he's actually very intent watching the fight and mm -hmm. learning there's just a lot of good you know good little character work again my complaint such with that scene is that it's too much of a good thing that's not a big problem for a movie. You know, yes. if you're like, eh, this one really great scene went on too long. Eh, I can live with that. There are much worse problems for a movie to have, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So back to Piccolo. Uh, I love the whole part of the movie that is Piccolo realizing they're going to kidnap Pan. And so he's like, 
well, hey, why don't I get in on this? And this will make Gohan come out to play. Um, which is so great because, of course, Piccolo isn't going to let Pan get hurt. And as soon as Pan realizes what's going on, she's totally on board with it. Uh, and it's very cute and fun and it works as intended. It's great. Yeah, I just love the setup of like that they're going to go kidnap Pan. And so here's like this big burly soldier and then Piccolo like sort of like weasels his way into that entourage but like the whole time say they'd be like i cannot wait until this big idiot tries to kidnap pan and just gets his absolute shit rocked by this little three-year-old girl um <laughs> and it's like i was just like say them like yes like like i just want to see this happen um you know it's the kind of thing you saw all the time in like classic dragon ball with people treating little little kid goku like a little kid and then goku would just absolutely fuck their shit up um but it's even funnier when it's like a toddler basically um, in her and, school uniform, which yes, she's in, in for the last half of the movie. Yeah, her adorable little school uniform. And I love that whole scene of, like, the guy being like, Hey, Pan, why don't you come, like, like acting like the most conspicuous child kidnapper you've ever seen? And she just punches <laughs> him in the dick. <laughs> it's just a fucking amazing. And then Piccolo convincing her to, like, pretend to be kidnapped and putting the little... Um, handcuffs on her but like you could break out of these with no problem right it's like yeah it's, it's, i can do that in a cinch um and like that whole process of how excited she is to play along with the kidnapping um and her like you know playing for the video and stuff like that that they're going to send to gohan and everything like it's a great it's a it's it's a very dragon ball sequence it's the kind of sequence that you really only ever see in dragon ball with these kinds of very ridiculous characters we have yes I love that Piccolo has had such a journey. This is not anywhere near the most extreme thing he's done with a child. Because uh, no. you have, like, you know, he did not, he, he pretended to have Pan be kidnapped and Pan was fine because they were having fun. He did not drop her off on a mountain for six months, you know? <laughs> yes, with only yeah. like a, like reluctantly making a little tiny sword for her and in, in, in some clothes yes. and that's it. Yeah, no, it's like, I, he's, he's grown a lot as a, a caretaker. Indeed. I also love in that scene the teacher who is there and as soon as Pan punches the guy, Pan turns to her and is like, I don't know him. And she's like, okay, Pan. And yes. then Piccolo comes up and the teacher knows Piccolo because yes. Piccolo picks up Pan. And so this random green alien dude, the teacher is just like, yeah, this is totally normal that this green alien dude is a nice guy who comes and picks up my student. I love it. Well, and, and Piccolo has this, that great excuse because he's dressed in like the security guard uniform thing or whatever. Like he looks like, you know, he's like a fucking SWAT team member. He's like, oh, it's a training <laughs> exercise you know because she's mr satan's granddaughter so you know kidnappers are going to come after her all the time she's like oh that makes sense yeah i get it's like so dragon ball it's so purely a dragon ball scene um it's yes. great <laughs> it's very good um yeah so we have all of that when they yeah they make the video and then piccolo goes with uh them to deliver it to gohan and i love that whole thing because piccolo is trying to like stay out of the way so gohan won't recognize him um, but Gohan also is like just not into it that much so Piccolo is surprised by that um, but that whole scene is fun and of course as soon as Gohan realizes what's going on he jumps into action and we get angry Gohan and angry Gohan is fun yes I mean as soon as he's, he starts going Super Saiyan outside his house and like creating that massive crater that keeps on big, getting bigger and bigger is and the um, house tilts yeah. off into the crater yeah he's gonna have to a, fix that yeah, there's a there's a scene during the end credits when the end credits are playing. They have there's all these like drawings showing like manga panels basically showing different scenes taking place after the movie. One of them is Videl looking at the house, just like <laughs> with this like a gape expression of like what the fuck has happened while I was working. Um, 
yeah it's it's it is very fun getting to see gohan get get into action like that right it's one of the, like i think a strong motivator for the plot is i think you're exactly in the same position as piccolo that you you want to see gohan get into it again you know you want to see him fight you want to see gohan sort of realize that he's being a little bit too um comfortable um and that he needs to be more you know alert and more prepared and all that kind of stuff um and to save his family to save the earth whatever uh, so when when Gohan starts losing his shit and Piccolo's like yeah 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 you're sitting there in the audience he's like yeah let's go let's go fuck Absolutely. up some robot men indeed I had a funny moment of um, anime wires in my brain being crossed watching that scene because when the house falls off its axis and it's like going into the thing uh, as Japanimation station listeners will know we have been watching and reading a shit ton of Full Metal Alchemist mm -hmm. and so the wires in my brain were totally crossed and I went oh someone's gonna have to clap their hands together and fix the <laughs> house <laughs> then I went no no that's a different series you have a wrong one they can do a lot in Dragon Ball they can't do alchemy although Piccolo can create clothes out of nothing so there's yeah. that yeah Piccolo could probably fix it with one of his weird magic beams like him or Boo can just sort of do things sometimes so I'm sure he can figure it out <laughs> indeed there is one shot of boo in this movie which is piccolo like thinking about all the heroes on earth and he thinks like oh boo is in sleep mode or something and we just see boo is like by a pool like poolside at capsule core just napping which is very yeah. funny i i do like that it doesn't even occur to piccolo to think of like krillin or Tenshinhan or you know god help you yamcha <laughs> like the thought doesn't even cross his mind to ask them for help um, you know, he thinks about the androids, but it's like, oh, but we're fighting Red Ribbon Army people, so that might not be the best idea. Um, they, they, he doesn't even, like, he doesn't, you know, mention a single syllable of a Yamcha uh, in this whole movie. Well, yeah, sadly we did not get Yamcha in this. It, it would be it would be nice, but oh well. I'm not sure what he would do. Um, Krillin does get to kick some ass. We'll talk about that yes. later. Krillin, everyone always underestimates Krillin. He's a great fighter. Anyway, so the second half of the movie is basically what happens after this, where Gohan flies off, and then we are in the big Red Ribbon Army base, which we gotta just take a second to talk about, is a really cool set that they constructed in the 3D space, of that it is like this factory, that then there's an illusory wall, and you go in and it's a much bigger evil army factory, uh, and that's where the entire climax of the movie takes place, and it's got its own like tram system going around and stuff like that, a little bit of the fight takes place there, all of that is super cool. Yeah, and it's got this sort of, like, reflective roof or dome or whatever, like, force field, I guess, because you can just kind of move through it. But it's a thing that when Gokan powers all the way up, it, like, shatters, and so the rain starts coming through it. Um, yeah, Like, yeah, it's very cool. dramatic um, staging, because it's, like, you know, for the rest of the movies, this kind of, like, perfect sunshine secret base thing, and then Gohan destroys that roof thing and, and, and lets, like, the outside air in. Mm-hmm. So we get Gohan versus Gamma 1, right? Yes. He's fighting yeah. the Hiroshi Kamiya. Yeah. Um, and that's a, it's a great fight. It's very well done. It's all in the rain, which is another one of, oh, they're taking full advantage of the CGI thing. Because rain is really hard to do in animation by hand um, and to mm -hmm. make everything look right. And it's a little easier to do in CGI. So it's a big fight in the rain, which I don't think we really don't have a ton of in Dragon Ball elsewhere. Um, because, again, it's kind of a more complicated thing to draw. Um but it's a very fun sequence, and you have Gohan. I like how they. there has always been a little bit of ambiguity in the post-Z era, like the super era roughly, of Gohan's exact power scaling, because uh -huh. in Z he has the whole thing where he becomes 
Ultra Gohan or whatever you want to call him, where the Grand Kai like pulls out his his latent potential, and that is explicitly stated in Z as being more powerful than Super Saiyan. He did not go Super Saiyan in Battle of Gods in the brief sequence where he fights Beerus. Um, but then in Resurrection F, he does go Super Saiyan and he doesn't go Ultra Gohan. And then they kind of went back and forth with it in Super. Here, it's he can go Super Saiyan. And then when he goes even fuller than that, his hair goes back to black and he's in the Ultra Gohan mode. I really like that as like a justification of the different Gohan power levels because I've always loved the sort of Ultra Gohan power up where it's not a hair color change. It's more of like an affect change. And I think it looks cool. Yeah, I've, I've, it's always been, I think, one of the most underutilized ideas because it comes in very late in Dragon Ball Z and, and it's, you know, it's one of, like, the core issues with the Buu Saga is that they do all this setup with Gohan and then it's like you get very little payoff with your ultimate Gohan, potential unleashed Gohan, the thousands of different, you know, pick your Wikipedia entry and your, your Dragon Ball wiki entry of, like, how you want to describe the form. Um, but, yeah, I think it has always been, or it was for a long time, like, a debate of... Is this a transformation that he activates, or is this just what he is all the time? And I feel like like we very much settled on a no. This is like a transformation that is beyond Super Saiyan and Super Saiyan Two. Um, probably is more powerful than if he did. Like I imagine Gohan doesn't need Super Saiyan Three because this seems like Dragon Ball Z. The Boo arc would imply that it is more powerful than than equivalent Super Three type form. But yeah, like I I really have always loved his ultimate form. I like its usage here. It is a thing that in the super, like the turn of power stuff, in the build up to that, there's like a whole episode of him, like kind of like re getting some of his mojo back and re attaining that form because he had let it kind of lapse for so long. Um, which this movie almost feels like taking that sort of idea, that episode from Super, because that's a Piccolo Gohan episode, and, and with Goku is also involved, and that's like blowing that up into its whole own movie instead to just focus like really in on that kind of story and that idea. Um, but yeah, I, I love Gohan's fight here. I love his design. I like getting him back in the like classic Piccolo outfit. Um, I really like him in the Piccolo outfit with like the scraggly hair before he's transformed and he's got like the cape on and everything. Yes. Um, and it looks like a grown up version of Gohan from the Cell games. Um, all of Gohan's various looks in this movie are very nice. They also do something that I find just, again, riotously funny, is Gohan has glasses as an adult in yes. Dragon Ball Super. And I think it has always been a question for me of what are the glasses for? Because he is a Saiyan with, like, superpowers, and, like, does he have actual eyesight issues? Or are they there to make him look smart? And we learn in this movie, he does have fairly severe eyesight issues, but when he transforms, they go away. That is fucking hilarious. It yes. is perfectly Toriyama. I love it so much. I love the idea that when he is a Super Saiyan, he's fine, his eyes are good, and then he powers back down, and oh no, I'm Velma from Scooby-Doo, I need my glasses. That yes. is that is amazing. Yeah, it is very funny the moment after the first like round of fighting is done. He's like, has anyone seen my glasses that came off while I was fighting? <laughs> um, yeah, it's very good. As someone who wears glasses uh, and has since I before I started reading Dragon Ball, uh, I, I appreciate that one of our heroes is a is a proud glasses wearer. Even Saiyans have uh, eye issues. I guess is is the lesson yes. of the story. Of course, but but Super Saiyans don't for Super whatever Saiyans reason. Don't. It's just, what, it's just what the, I guess you know their either pupil color changes. This probably has to do something like that. It makes sense. Yeah. So you have Gohan versus Gamma 
uh, one, you have Piccolo doing a second round with Gamma 2 and kind of bringing Gamma 2 around to their side. Uh, I forget the exact chain of events that leads to the activation of Cell Max, but basically Gohan does get the better of Gamma 1 and and Gamma 2 realizes what's going on, right? Well, they basically fight to a standstill, more or less. Um, right. Because cause Gamma 1 and Gamma 2, since they're androids, they run on like a power source or whatever, so they don't get fatigued. Um, and it's just like they're fighting more or less to a standstill. Piccolo use, activates his, his crazy orange Piccolo form, um, which is, as far as I can tell, is just officially called Orange Piccolo. That's what he says in the movie. That seems to be the name of the form. Um, and... Like it is using that time to try to convince Gamma too, um, and then the stuff with Pan happens, right? And uh, right, Carmine. Carmine at Pan. tries to kill Pan. Yeah, yeah, and that's what convinces Gamma to finally be like, okay, yeah, no, I know who the bad guy is here, um, and that's how you shift into the Cell Max phase of the plot. Yes. So anyway, I do like all of that. I think the fights here are fantastic. You yeah. know, they're not as spectacular as in Broly, uh, but they shouldn't be. That's not the kind of movie this is either, mm-hmm. right? If if you did the weird thing that Broly did, where like they break into a fourth dimension or something that'd be weird for this movie you know so this is a little more grounded but i think i love the back and forth that you start with gohan a little more powerful gamma one powers up and shows what he can do that's when gohan goes ultimate piccolo there's a back and forth until he goes to the what we then call orange piccolo which is fun um all of that is good do you want to talk about orange piccolo as uh, a, a brand new power up and it has been a it has been a joke in the Dragon Ball community for decades now. What would a Super Namekian be? I know the term Super Namekian shows up in different places, but like the Super Saiyan version of a Namekian. And now we have a true Namekian transformation, uh, and it's goofy, and I love it. It's very it's very Toriyama. It's very, he gets, because yeah. at first, because he does have like a slight color change. The first time he like, after Shinron powers him up, like Piccolo's sort of look is a little bit yellowier. Um, and I thought, oh, that's his transformation in the movie. Because you saw it in, like, a clip from the trailer. Um, and so I was like, oh, like, I guess that's, like, his transformation. Like, that's fine. Um, and then, yes, but then later in the movie, he gets, like, he's being being beaten by Gamma 2. He gets, like, knocked down that crater or whatever. He has the flash to the dragon saying, oh, I threw in a little something extra for you. Uh, it's, like, a little extra spice. And then go, and then Piccolo transforms into, like, what if Piccolo is played by Arnold Schwarzenegger with like orange skin? <laughs> Basically, it's fucking. I'm I'm like way into it. I love the like big crazy um, orange Piccolo. And particularly, I think where I really really love the form is more at the end of the movie when he grows gigantic with it. Yes, because I yes. feel like to me, I feel like the form is almost retroactively was like designed backwards. Like it feels like they knew they wanted Piccolo to use his like grow giant power from the end of original Dragon Ball. Um, and they created a design that works really well with that idea because it looks fairly goofy when he's more or less normal Piccolo sized. He's just bulked up more. But when he's like a giant kaiju monster, then it looks fucking great. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with that. The entire fact that they... Br- I just about stood up and cheered in the theater when someone mentioned like to Piccolo, like, hey, didn't you grow giant once at the Tenkaichi Budokai? And Piccolo's like, oh, right, I can do that. And then he does it because... If you know me, that's my favorite Dragon Ball fight. That might be my favorite single volume of the manga is volume 16, which is that part of the tournament. Uh, I love Piccolo, like evil shit-eating grin, Piccolo Jr. growing giant and fighting Goku. It's all so good. And decades later, we've brought it back, goddammit, and it's glorious. Yes. It's, and it's great. And, and now he's like this crazy giant orange version of himself. 
And yes. I do love that Piccolo gets to name his own form. Like, Go Gohan runs up to him afterwards. It's like, man, what the hell was that, Piccolo? Like, you gotta name it. Like, we've got Super Saiyan. What's your thing? Is like, I think I'll call it Orange Piccolo. <laughs> Gohan's like, Orange Piccolo. Okay. <laughs> it's what Piccolo would name it. It feels exactly. very in character. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, you know, I, I totally understand this is not... The, the transformations in the Dragon Ball Super era are not everyone's cup of tea. But what I like about them, and I know this is the thing that annoys some people, is I love that Toriyama is embracing all the colors of the rainbow. Yes. We had red Super Saiyan God. We have blue, it's literally Super Saiyan Blue, which is in the video games called Super Saiyan God, Super Saiyan, SSGSS. But I like Super Saiyan Blue because it's yes. not as annoying to say. Um, just all the transformations have been sort of color-based. And I think that's fun. And I actually think it's very intentional because the transformations in the manga were explicitly premised on the fact that it was a black and white manga. Mm -hmm. So how do you show a color change? Well, you make his hair white, right? And Toriyama has made the joke about how he did it so that then his assistant wouldn't have to do all the shading on the hair. But it's also like, if you're going to do a transformation like that, you have to do it in a way that works in black and white. I like that we're in an, a pure anime-only era of the show, so the transformations rely on color more. I think that's cool, and I think we get that here as well. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah I enjoy it. It's like they're obviously the like transformations outside of Ultra Instinct in the Turn of the Power, which is fucking amazing. Um, it is more like a classic Dragon Ball style transformation. This era, like the transformations are less about like the Super Saiyan. It's a massive culmination of like this huge massive story arc and 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 all this build up, and it's more there for fun. But I like it. I like that they're like willing to sort of just like take the piss out of it a little bit and just have fun with the transformations and 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 just do what you want with it um rather than having it rather than trying to constantly replicate the what like super saiyan and super saiyan 2 were it's a lot more like how super saiyan 3 was integrated which is more like half as a story beat and half kind of feeling like a joke right and also, I think a lot of the transformations have been used well within the aesthetics of the works themselves. Mm -hmm. Like, Super Saiyan Blue, I think looks good in Resurrection F, looks phenomenal in Broly. You know, yes. it just is really well done there and feels like, I thank God for that flash of color because they use it so well. And then I think this movie makes really good use of the, the orange pickle. As you say, I think especially when he's in beast mode, you know, he's all, all big and fighting Cell Max. All of that's great and it just looks really good and is fun. Um, but the whole activation of Cell Max is that sequence in the underground lab where Magenta is trying to set him off. Hedo fights Magenta. Magenta seemingly kills Hedo with the gun. Um, I, it was very funny. The people sitting behind me when Hedo got shot were like, oh, I liked him. And I was like, he's definitely not dead. Remember what yeah. he said about his skin? His skin is slightly harder than normal. Yeah, um, so it, it can, he has modified his skin to be able to withstand impacts of a certain degree. Yes. So he lives. He uh, totally kills Magenta. Cold-blooded yep. killer with his cool bee dude. I, you know, it's uh, it's very much Chekhov's gun. He he displays that the bee can kill at the beginning of the movie. And at the end of the movie, he kills Magenta with it. But it's too late, and Cell Max does get out. Uh, Cell Max is an interesting idea. I was actually surprised in the credits to see that it is Norio Wakamoto's credited as Cell Max, even though all he's doing is yelling. And it kind of could have been anyone. Um, no, but... it couldn't have been. No, it has to be. That was what. That was the thing where I was like a little. Uh, I don't know about the Cell Max thing when it, it started happening, and then I heard Nordio Wakamoto yelling. I'm like, oh, I'm for this now. Like I'm 100 for this. Like it, it's 
the fact that they got him in there just to yell and you can you know i mean he is the most recognizable voice actor he is like the japanese version of christopher walken nobody sounds like norio wakamoto like his affectations in his speech are so distinctive um that even him just doing non-vocal yells and growls is like yeah that's him that's what i just hit him and i was fucking very happy to hear it um no absolutely it's 100% the thing that sold me on the entire concept was just that it is him yelling the entire time he doesn't even have a single line of actual dialogue yeah you know, I think Cell Max is not the best thing in the movie or the best villain ever or anything. The entire conceit is to have a big, crazy villain for everyone mm-hmm. to have to team up and fight. And I think it works 100% on that level. You know, I think it's it's not the most imaginative thing in this or any other Dragon Ball movie, but I think it allows for everything else that happens. And it is fun to hear Norio Wakamoto screaming for, you know, 30 minutes of the movie. Yeah, because I think it's just like the alternative is that it's just a nondescript, generic, giant monster or robot or something that they all fight um you know they just need like a big giant enemy threat and so if if it's just going to be a generic thing otherwise you might as well just like connect it to something somehow and so that's for me like the cell max thing um it's very kind of like utilitarian or whatever and how it is utilized but it, it works for me in that way that i think it's better than just ginning up some random monster design that you're never going to use again And there's so many great moments during this last stretch of the movie. I love Bulma coming and having brought uh, Krillin and number 18 uh, because Krillin is part of the police force. So, you know, he's got to he's got to do his job. Um, He's got a lot of paperwork out of him. (laughs) Oh, boy. Poor, poor police officer Krillin. Um, But, you know, I love that you have that. I love I love the moment that Krillin. Everyone always underestimates Krillin. I think Krillin underestimates himself. He totally saves the day when he comes yep. in and does the Kienzan and then the Taioken. Because Krillin is not as strong as a lot of other Dragon Ball characters. He is emphatically a better fighter than some of them. Like, yeah. Goten and Trunks, definitely stronger than Krillin. They've been stronger than Krillin since they probably were toddlers. But... Krillin is a smarter fighter than them because we see Goten and Trunks don't do anything good on purpose in this movie, which is a great joke because they fuck up the fusion and then they're thrown around like a volleyball. Meanwhile, Krillin, he gets two great attacks off. Yeah, no, it's, it is, it is a good use of Krillin. Um, I like, you know, he's, he's like Piccolo in that way that it's like, he's the, he's the crafty one because he has to be. Um, yes. Yes. And I, I like how they use Krillin. I love Goten and Trunks being, completely useless um and i like the joke of like go tanks being the volleyball this time because you know like the volleyball thing is one of his like big moves from the boo arc um so him getting turned right. into the volleyball is fun yes i uh we also just have to stop and say i really like goten and trunks's in between design yes. it's it's not crazy far off from where they are at the end of z but it's even more kind of like gangly and awkward teenagers i particularly love trunks's outfit and his general uh-huh. like kind of like bad boy teenage vibe is very funny to me uh and i also like the detail that they just haven't fused in a while and so they're like rusty at it and they fuck it up and it's very funny yeah yeah it's definitely a thing that you know if they do more dragon ball stuff like a tv show i would be very happy to see more of these versions of the characters because that is like (laughs) one of the things about um super that eventually like felt like a little dry was that like it was frustrating that goten and trunks were like stuck in their z versions for so long um that's really satisfying to finally be able to like move those characters up a bit and i think it just opens up some opportunities to do new things with them 
we mentioned Masako Nozawa there, but you also get a couple lines from Takeshi Kusao, yeah. who I always love the different ages he has to play Trunks at. His couple of lines here as angsty teenage Trunks was very funny to me. Yes. I'm, and I'm, I'm sure he's, like, grateful that they've aged up Trunks a little bit so that he doesn't have to try to play, like, an eight-year-old boy. Uh, it's always felt yes. always felt like, was like man, you've got to be killing yourself trying to do this voice, man. Yes. But, of course, the main attraction of this final fight is all of the Piccolo and Gohan stuff. And we do, uh, in the midst of Piccolo holding off Cell Max in his Gigantamax form, we do have uh, Gohan do a big transformation that is a clear callback, obviously, to the end of the Cell games. It even does a visual reference to it with the like red beam that kind mm. of shoots through his head extra diegetically, which is there in the manga, it's there in the anime. Um, but it's a different kind of moment, of course, here. Uh, and it comes after uh, Gamma 2's big sacrifice, which is a spectacular sequence. Yeah. 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 Um, that, that scene is so... Maybe we can come back and talk about that, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's an interesting moment because I think I was like sitting there wondering like what are you going to do with Gohan? Like are you going to give him a new transformation? Are you going to like you know, clearly like the movie is building up to Gohan having to be the one who saves the day. I think it's why like, you know, when Gamma 2 starts doing his thing, you can tell that well this is not going to be able to finish it because Gohan clearly is the character who has to win at the end. Partially because it's a giant cell monster, but also because, like, Piccolo has been setting up this idea that you've had said a couple times over the course of the movie that, like, if he wants to or when he needs to be, Gohan is the most powerful person on Earth. Um, and so I like the idea of, okay, we have this, like, unique transformation, which when I looked it up, apparently it is officially called Gohan Beast. It is his. It is literally his beast mode um, that is, like, a mix between, I think, the aesthetic of Ultra Instinct and the aesthetic of his classic Super Saiyan 2 Cell Games look. Which the Super Saiyan 2 Cell Games Gohan has always been my favorite Super Saiyan design. I think it has always like yes. captured the most, the like sort of like ferocity of um, that uh, whole like the concept of Super Saiyan. Um, with like the giant spiky golden hair and like Super Saiyan 2 Gohan has always been the one that stood out to me as like the most interesting design. And this is just like a on crack version of that basically. Basically that. Um, and then, of course, they do. About 20 minutes before this actually happens in the movie, I was thinking to myself, God, I hope he does a Makanka Sapo. Like, Me I too. just realized, like, yeah. oh, they need that's how this movie needs to end. And uh, we get it. It's glorious. He's in this new beast mode. He's got the cool gray hair. And he puts the fingers to his head. And I was like, God, take me now. I'm happy. Yeah. I've lived a good life. Gohan is going to do the Makanko Sapo. Uh, and Masako Nozawa says that line. The Makanko Sapo. Like she's been waiting 30 years to do it. It's yeah. like, I finally get... I've said most of the Dragon Ball things. I haven't gotten to say this one. I'm going to fucking make it count. And it is, it's one, legitimately one of her best, like, power line readings like that. You know, like a Kamehameha or something. That Makanko Sapo just comes from the core of her being. He shoots it out, and it is, it's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so satisfying because I have the exact same reaction. I think the, the movie is very good at, like, planting the seeds to set you up for something like that. It's particularly, like, the thing for me, the moment that sensed it, that's like, oh, they're going to go for something like that. I mean, the whole scenario of, like, that it's, like, this little spot on his head or whatever that they have to hit and break, like, is very much feels like it's setting that up. Um, but then Piccolo says to Gohan, I'm going to hold him down. You yes. hit him with a Kamehameha 
or something is what he says. And as soon as like you open up the door for something other than a Kamehameha, I'm like, okay, here we go. Uh, oh, oh, fucking shit. Because the Makan Kosapo is one of those moves that, like a lot of Dragon Ball moves in the like main stuff, is only ever used once. Piccolo only ever uses the Makan Kosapo at the end of the Raditz story, and he uses it to kill Raditz and to kill Goku. Um, and it never comes up again. It's never used again. Obviously, you know, it'll happen in the movies. It's his move in all of the games. Like, we're very familiar with the Makan Kosapo. And if you're a Dragon Ball fan, it's in everything all the time. But in the actual series, it only ever has been used one time. It, it probably is, it pops up in Super. Um, but I mean, it like, does in the Universe Z. 6 versus Universe 7 arc, he is when he brings it back. And it was exciting because yes. he hadn't done it in the canon before then. Yes, but in terms of like the main original stuff in like Z, it's a lot like like Vegeta, where Vegeta has only ever used the move one time. He only ever used the Gallic Gun once. That he used the Big Bang Attack once, and he used the Final Flash once, and that's it. Yes. Um. <laughs> and, and so it's it's one of those weird quirks of Dragon Ball as a franchise is that outside of stuff like the Kamehameha and the Spirit Bomb, most of those special moves only pop up the one time that they're used. Um. So it is very satisfying to see it get used here for such a like powerful narrative moment of this bond between gohan and piccolo and it's particularly the moment after it all happens because the whole thing is spectacular yes. it's amazing the fucking all the shit they do with the giant energy effects and the like giant death bomb that cell max is making that expands in these like weird giant like spurts like all that shit is incredible the coloring like they they went haywire with all that shit and it's great but the thing that sells it the most is afterwards Gohan telling Piccolo, the Piccolo coming up to Gohan being like, was that a Makan Kosapo? And Gohan being like, yeah, I used to do it. I used to practice it in secret. And he says, good job. And it's like, oh. I got teary eyed. Yeah. I like, genuinely, it's one of the only times Dragon Ball has gotten tears out of me. Uh, I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. It's an amazing moment of just like, and that's one of those things where it, like the the bond between Piccolo and Gohan is so strong. But again, it's that thing where it's like, it's so nuanced in this different way. It's not the kind of interaction that Piccolo would have had with Gohan when he was a kid. And he used the, like if he had used the special beam cannon slash Makan Kosapo in the Cell Games fight, that wouldn't have been the conversation they had. Um, but there's something about like how honest Gohan is about it in like a slightly sheepish way, but he's so upfront about it that there's a maturity to that interaction between these two characters that shows you how much they have grown um and 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 still how close their relationship is that yeah it like that hit me really hard because it's just it it is the perfect gohan piccolo moment for this movie that's the thing that i think you know best dragon ball movie one of the best dragon whatever you want to say what this movie does special that no other dragon ball movie does is that kind of thing yes right? yeah yeah and that is it's it's a unique you know, thing to have in the modern Dragon Ball era done beautifully, beautifully well. Uh, and I love it to death. I do love all the stuff with the, the androids here as well. You know, we talked about Gamma 2's big sacrifice scene. That is, you know, as you, you noted, Mamoru Miyano is a big Dragon Ball fan. He is yelling his heart out there yep. for that big final. And I think that is one of the most impressive pieces of animation in the movie is his big using all his power and like punching down uh, to, to try to break into cell. And he winds up punching his arm off instead. Um, but it is still a necessary sacrifice. I think the moment we mentioned it earlier where Piccolo talks to Dr. Hedo and says, hey, we wouldn't have been able to do this without you. He was a superhero. That's a beautiful moment. Um, I just, I love the whole sense that like 
Gamma 2 mattered and people are sad. And because it's not immediately reversed with the Dragon Balls, you actually kind of feel the loss there in the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's all just really beautifully done. Yeah, the whole ending of this movie is phenomenal. Because it's that thing of where, like, you know, the the action part of it is very well executed. But what's really important is all the stuff that happens afterwards. And And to me, that's like the stuff that stands out the most i mean there's a reason why a lot of the stuff we talked about at the beginning of this conversation is stuff that happens here at the end of this movie with like the pan shots and with yeah. the not not the pan shots in terms of like a panning shot a pan shot in terms of a shot that has panned the character in it um just yes. make that very clear uh because it is the panning shot um but the shots with pan's pov the stuff with gamma 2 um the the piccolo saying like he was a superhero um and then you know the Makan Kosapa lines like that is like what this movie is about is getting all of those moments and having them feel totally earned and all the crazy action that happened for the 30 minutes prior to that is all just to, to give those moments the weight that they need yeah absolutely it's it's a very have your cake and eat it too and that you get great action it really is yeah it's only if it's lesser in comparison to anything it's only lesser in comparison to Broly and that's it's okay to be lesser than that right yeah, again, I mean, yeah, I think... it's definitely the second best action in any Dragon Ball movie. Like, there's kind of yeah. no question to me on that front. Yeah. Um, so, and again, it's going for something different than Broly. I'm glad mm. it's different, and yeah. I think it's intentionally so. Um, but then, again, have your cake and eat it too. You get that, but then the character stuff at the end and the story is just so, so superior and so beautifully well done and satisfying. Um, if I have any one little nagging complaint at the end here, and it's small, I think the whole joke that I I love that Bulma agrees to take Dr. Hedo and Gamma 1 to Capsule Core and they'll work with her. I think bringing back the joke about her and the skincare stuff feels like going to that well one too many times, because that's the joke with her and Broly. It's the joke with the dragon, and I love that with the Dragon Balls, because again, it's both sides of Bulma. It's that she's very smart, and she's also kind of vain. Uh, and then here, I think it's just a, a trip maybe one too many times to the kind of vain Bulma well because Bulma is in this a lot and she's great and the, the new Bulma voice actress Aya Hisakawa is is very good. Um, but I feel like there could have been a slightly different beat there. But that's more of a nitpick than anything. Sure, I'm yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. That they probably they go to that joke one too many times, but it's it's yeah, it's it's not a big deal at the end of the movie. No, and I and I uh, no you what whatever else I like the idea that they will be there at Capsule Core because yes. that is a place for them to come back into the story, mm-hmm. and I think fun stuff can happen there. I like the kind of like uh, Doctor Hedo sort of humbled at the end of the movie where they say like you were tricked, and he says I was, but I also knew what was going on. I think that's a sweet little moment. Yeah, um, yeah, all of that is good. And then Pan learns to fly, and she flies around and hugs her dad, and we go to credits. And everyone's happy, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And then, did you see the post-credit scene? I absolutely saw the post-credit scene, and the, that is easily the, hap- the best post-credit. The happiest Sorry, ending Dragon Ball has ever had. Vegeta won. Vegeta won, uh, and the best post-credit scene in any superhero movie. Yes, that's for damn sure. Yes, Vegeta wins. I love that Broly <laughs> is like in tears, having watched the fight. No one else cares. And then Whis realizes he didn't answer the phone. And Bulma's like, eh, we fixed it. And uh, it's a good ending. Yeah, I I love the moment at the end where <laughs> fucking Vegeta and Goku are just like barely standing on their feet. They like very lightly punch one another. Goku falls down first um, and just goes, ah, I lost. Uh, and then Vegeta's like, I won! Finally, I won! <laughs> he collapses. Uh, that 
is so funny to me. It's it's a very good little post credit scene. Um, yeah, that is a lot better than you know they don't use it as like a oh and here's a character from the Dragon Ball Super manga has appeared out of a <laughs> portal um, and says a line of dialogue and then you smash into another version of the credits or whatever. Um, it's it's just a very fun little character beat that you get to end the movie on. Um, I liked it. Ryo Horikawa, very funny there. The entire idea that Vegeta's first official victory over Goku happens in a post credit scene is the perfect yes. piece of Toriyama writing. Yeah, of course, of course that's how it happens, right? Yeah, and I just, I, I, because I didn't know that there was going to be a post credit scene. I just knew in my heart of hearts, it's like, they must, because it's a superhero movie, they got it, they got to have done it, right? They must have put a fucking post credit scene to this thing. Uh, but I was very satisfied to see that I was right. Yes, it's wonderful. It's a great little ending. Uh, speaking of the credits and, and the music we get there, uh, I love the score to this movie. Yes. This is, it's Naoki Sato, who is a new composer to Dragon Ball. Dragon Ball has had uh, several composers over the years. It was, oh, I'm forgetting his name, but the guy who did From Battle of Gods through All of Super. Uh, and I think that music was kind of up and down. Some of it was bad. Some of it was good. The Broly score was very good. Yeah. This is a new composer, though. And I think Naoki Sato hit this out of the park. Very clearly, the, the mandate or the idea was to do a big kind of like Hollywood-style superhero movie score. And it's better than most Hollywood superhero movie scores. There is not a Marvel movie with a score as effective as this movie. I will firmly say that and I believe it 100%. This movie has like, I was listening to the soundtrack today, Walking My Dog. And I loved, it just like, took the walk went by in no time. I'm loving the music. Um, and I walked out of the theater humming the melodies. And it's a big, boisterous superhero movie score. It's not exactly the kind of music I would want in all Dragon Ball stuff. Because it doesn't have some of the like fun silly side it doesn't do some of the like big horns that i associate with like shunsuke kikuchi and the classic dragon ball music but for this movie perfect and yeah. totally outdoes hollywood on because hollywood music is mostly bad now this is great yeah i'm i'm 100 with you and i just i just found the score very funny in that sense of like how good it was at evoking your classic superhero thing it felt like a like really good version of um uh, the episode of Doctor Who, the return of Doctor Mysterio, that is like a decent episode yes. of Doctor Who, but is like the superhero parody thing. And that like is like a whatever, you know, like the score of that episode like is going for that. But on a TV budget, they can't really fully do that parody. But it reminded me of that, of this like it's it's like a superhero movie turned up to 11 in terms of the score. Yes. Like it, it is making a joke out of how the, much of a superhero thing it is. And it really like sort of puts a lampshade on that joke at the beginning because I love that most of the opening scene of this movie has no music to it. And then Carmine puts the, like, a thing, or, like, he turns on the radio or whatever it is um, when <laughs> the end of, like, like when Magenta is wrapping up his deal to give this, like, dramatic music to really, like, sort of get Hedo into it. So he puts on this big superhero music theme that starts, like, pumping up at the end of that, like, kind of prologue. Uh, and, and it's just, like, a way of sort of, like, introing you into the, what the music is doing. Because I think the music is most times in this movie um, in on exactly that joke. And it's really great. Yes. I, I loved that joke. I love they even do a nice big close-up of the radio. It yeah. like has all the different colors as he turns it up all the way. Um, this movie is just dripping with fun little details like that. It really feels like a Dragon Ball movie where everyone involved had a lot of fun. I think I would bet 
anything that this was probably Toriyama's favorite of the new movies to write. It just feels like he's mm-hmm. having a ball with this one. Because this is also more kind of, I think, in the like sense of stakes that I think he's a little more comfortable with, especially these days, than maybe the world-shattering stuff. Um, and just all of that. And I think everyone on down, from the director, Kodama, to the music, to everything, um, it's just such a joy. It feels like a treat for everyone to get to make and then for all of us to get to watch. Yeah, and it's one I'm very, very eager to rewatch uh, for some of those like background details because there's definitely a lot of shots or sequences I want to pause or play multiple times to sort of like see all the details in the background. Like one thing I love is on Magenta's desk in his office, he has a picture of Commander Red and General Violet, who I guess is obliged to be his mom, <laughs> right? Which is how you get Magenta, um, yes. which I thought was very funny. Um, I didn't notice that. That's yeah. great. Yes. Yeah, uh, it's 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 very briefly in one shot, and I saw Daryl Violet. I'm like, oh yeah. I mean, there's nothing in Dragon Ball that implies that those two hooked up, but it makes sense that like that's how this character gets his name, and that's where that comes from. Um, and then another moment I like of like this has got to be the most like deep Dragon Ball lore in any of these movies is when they're doing all the Hedo stuff. There's like a cork board that they show that has like Doctor Jero. And it's got Android 21 from Dragon Ball Fighters because and because the story in that game is that Android 21 was Jero's wife that then got turned into an android and their kid is Android 16 or is the person that Android 16 was based on. Um, and that I guess they had another kid because there's like it's almost like fucking Rise of the Skywalker up in a funny way of the like, well, we can't have it be Dr. Garrow's son because that doesn't make sense. So they have to have had this like kid that we don't really give a shit about that we're not going to show, but that kid's kid is this character. Um, and so like on that corkboard, you see Android 21 from Dragon Ball Fighters, you see Android 16, and then there's just another per- like person that's just like a blank space with no picture in it. And it's like, oh, and that person married someone else and then they died, but then they had their kid that was Dr. Hedo and that's the character you care about. There's something about that scene that I find very funny that they wrap in all this like lore from the game. Um, that was stuff that I'm pretty sure Toriyama was like consulted on or whatever, because I know he did the Android 21 design and stuff. Um, so it's not just a thing that like Arc System Works made up on their own, um, but it just kind of integrates that. But then it also just like, yeah, and then some stuff happened. And then now here's our character. Um, I think it's a very funny piece of very Dragon Ball-esque exposition. Yes, it was very funny. Uh, when that played in the theater, uh, there were people behind me who, when they saw Android 21, went, oh, that's, that's from the game. Yeah. And I just love that like the game is so popular. You can be in the movie theater and people will notice it. Uh, I definitely wanted to go slow down and see that. The whole family tree was very funny to me. Because yeah. in my head before we did that, I was also going, well, wait, is Garrow his first or last name? Because Hedo is a different name, but he's his grandson. I guess there was a family. And then they show the family tree, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's how it happened. So there you yeah. go. Although, what is a first and last name in Dragon Ball is weird because the Soen family is the only family we know of with a family name. So, it's That's very true. Funny. Well, I mean, the thing we know is that, you know, legally you have to have a pun based on the same kinds of puns as your um, other family yes. members. Um, I think that that's the only naming rule that's very consistent in the world of Dragon Ball. It must be, it's a it's a holy, like, divine rule because it applies to space people also. Yes. <laughs> like, Frieza and his entire family. That'll be uh, like you know, the prologue... The prologue of the next movie will be Zeno, uh, like, deciding that. Like, it's like five <laughs> billion years ago, like, at the dawn of the universe. And Zeno's like, you know what would be very fun? What if everyone had pun names? It's like, let me, like, write that into the fabric of space-time. Um, and, that will, and then someone will have, like, a name that they hate, and they'll try to destroy the universe in order to get their, like, name changed. So that's going to be the plot of the next movie. Yes. 
Um, you know, I think we uh, talked about this at the end of Broly, and then nothing hap- came out of it, but we might as well say it again. What do you want to see from Dragon Ball going forward after this? This movie is not doing the same kinds of numbers as Broly. It looks like kind of everywhere it's... it's this In America, it opened bigger than Broly, but it also was on twice as many screens. In Japan, it did about half the box office of Broly, which is still really good. That still, yes. I think, makes it the second highest grossing Dragon Ball movie. Um, it's made $50 million worldwide so far. That's definitely you know more than more than enough to make a profit and it'll probably make more once you add in america and other territories so definitely dragon ball still successful um i think you know what i would honestly love to see is another tv thing but i would love if toei could shift away from the week to week thing and do actual like cores of dragon ball yes yeah like do a single 13 episode season and like pick a set of characters and do that and then maybe the year after that pick another set of characters I think that would be a very fun way to move forward and have more kind of concentrated arcs. Um, but I would love to see more in whatever form we get it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you that I would be down for. I, I, I think I would go for like a two-core structure because um, I think like Dragon Ball, I think it, it would be hard to restrain yourself to only doing a 12 or 13 episode chunk. Um, but yeah, something like move to that kind of slightly more modern like My Hero Academia and stuff like that um, has very much been on that sort of structure of yeah once a year or so we put out a two core chunk um you can do that at a very high level of quality and you can you know structure it that way um you know i have not followed i know that the dragon ball super manga has been ongoing i have not followed any of that stuff at all so i don't know if that would be stuff that they should do that or they should just do their own thing um but yeah i would really want to see another tv show um that follows off of after the end of this movie um with the main thing being i want to see well, now I want to see Hedo and Gamma 1, at least. If not, maybe also you can find a way to get Gamma 2 back. Or make a Gamma 3 that is also voiced by Miyano Mamoru. That would also sound... I just want his character not to be dead, because he's a nice... He seems, <laughs> seems like a really nice guy. And it's like, hey, I would be happy if he got to continue to be in Dragon Ball. Um, but I really want to follow up more with the Broly cast of characters. And I want to revisit some of the characters from Super, like Caulifla and uh, Kale. Like, I want to, like, revisit some of those characters and do more stuff with them. I think the thing I said at the end of the Broly movie podcast we did, if I remember correctly, was I would like to see a story that is our Saiyans going to the Universe 6 Saiyan, like, planet and doing stuff with them. And there being something that they need to go help them with and take Broly with you. And maybe you can take Gamma with you also or whatever. Um, like, that would be a story I'd be very interested in seeing just to get, like, all of these characters together and do stuff with all of them because that's what I want to see. Yeah, I think I would like to see Dragon Ball back on TV in some form. I think a, you know, Super, I think, got into a very good groove. But the weekly, every single week of the year thing definitely hurt it in the beginning and at various points throughout. And I think, you know, in general, I would like to see all of Toei's shows do this. Because Mm -hmm. as good as the Wano arc of One Piece is, think of what it could be if they only did 26 episodes a year. You know, like, Jesus um, and so in general, I'd, I'd love to see maybe Toei... Uh, they've adapted to the times in some ways. Their production flow is much better than it was even five years ago. Um, so hopefully they have room to build this in. But, you know, I will I will take Dragon Ball whenever and wherever we get it, and I am excited to see what comes next. Yeah, yeah. I would love a TV show, and then, and then every once in a while I'll do another movie. Like, I've been loving these movies, and it is, like, yep. awesome to see how, like, receptive like the broader public is to 
anime movies these days that you can just open Dragon Ball over here as wide as any movie and it's you know making really good money at the box office and people are happy and excited about it um and going and seeing the movie that's like over here you know i just it feels like there's there, that the market here for dragon ball is still so alive and so i think like eager for new content um and you know i'm hoping that you know the people at crunchyroll now because this is the first dragon ball thing that does not have the funimation logo on it because funimation no longer exists properly as a an entity in the west um, because it's now owned by Crunchyroll, but like to like it feels like they have done such a good job at really finding that space over here and cultivating and capitalizing on the market that exists for Dragon Ball in America, and that like each movie has opened wider and wider and had more and more options. Now we can watch the Japanese dub with English subtitles in theaters. Um, so it just feels like the market over here is so eager. I know in Japan they want more. That I just hope that in whatever form we get, even if it's not a TV show and it's just more movies, that we get more Dragon Ball at a, at a nice pace. You know, I think I've told the story before of I went to the first ever theatrical screening of Dragon Ball in America. Was there one night screening through, I think, an early version of like Fathom Events or something of Dragon Ball. It was when Movie 12, Fusion Reborn, came out over yeah. here. And for one night, they showed Fusion Reborn and The Return of Cooler. I don't know why <laughs> it was those two. Uh, it was movies 12 and 6. And it was a terrible screening. It was literally just the DVDs projected in a... It was at a United Artists Theater in... We were in California on vacation. So that's where I saw it. But I remember it vividly. I got to see Dragon Ball on the big screen. It was cool. Uh, I remember... So Battle of Gods played for one night. was the same thing with the Fathom Events. Battle of Gods... That screening... That was at the Belmar Theater back in Colorado, Sean. Right, yeah. And... Mm -hmm. That screening, it was for one night only, and it was so sold out that they oversold the theater and there were people sitting and standing in the aisles. I will never forget that. There was a, such clear enthusiasm, like, oh my god, they biffed it not doing a big theatrical release for this movie because people were so hungry for it. And then Resurrection F had a couple of nights you could go see it, and that was cool. Broly had a big rollout, but it was still only in English. And now to, I got to see this at my art house indie theater film scene here in Iowa that is my favorite movie theater to go to. I love it. Great sound and picture and everything. And they had it and I could go in English. I could go in Japanese. Um, we got to do a podcast like this, finally talking about the actual Japanese version from yep. the go, not having to dance around that. Uh, God, that is, I just, as someone who has followed this for most of my life now, it's actively surreal that this happened. Uh, and of course it's not the only one you know we've got I think I think Kimetsu opened at number one Jujutsu Kaisen Zero did this did anime becoming bigger and bigger at the US box office and uh, I love that Crunchyroll releasing has this whole thing wrapped up you know One Piece Film Red will be coming out soon here and we'll get the same thing it's all great yeah it's just like there's no reason not to go wide with it you know the audience is here and yeah like the only one of like the first Dragon Ball movie I saw in theaters was Broly because like, I, there was no, you know, because I'm not, you know, as enthusiastic about going and seeing things in the theaters as you are. So it's like, I'm not going to try to get the, like, one movie screening that you can get that's a movie theater that you have to drive, like, fucking an hour to go get to or anything like that. Like, it's, it's um, a bit much for me for that stuff. And it's like, and even with Broly, you know, it, I had to go to a movie theater, not, like, crazy far away, but, like, outside of the immediate area to go find, to get to the movie theater that was playing Broly. Whereas, like, with this movie, like, any movie theater in my general area, I, I mean, I just went to the movie theater I'd normally go to, which is just a Cinemark one that is near where I live. 
um, here in Texas, but I could have gone to fucking anything. Like when I was looking up tickets, it was on like any movie theater. Like it wasn't, I didn't have to look up this movie to try to find special screenings. I just had to look up this movie like I do any other movie. And I've never done that with like an anime thing. Like even stuff that opened wider than um, normal stuff like Mugen Train, you still kind of had to go a little bit out of your way to sort of like find some of that info because it wasn't just like, on the front page, hey, here it is. It's the anime movie. You go to Fandango.com and like the first thing that pops up is Dragon Ball Super Superhero, you know? Um, and that's awesome. Yep. It's been a cool journey. I hope it continues. We love Dragon Ball. We love the people who make it. I'm so happy we got this movie. Absolutely great. Uh, one note on the future uh, with Japanimation Station. Yes. Next time we talk, we will be doing Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, but Sean and I have decided... It's a long series. We also want to tie in our thoughts on the manga, which we kind of have to talk about at the same time because they're telling the same story. Yeah. So we are splitting Brotherhood into two episodes. And coincidentally, the best place to split it is just right down the middle. We are doing episodes 1 through 32 for part 1. And then we will do episodes 33 through 64 for part 2. That split I chose because the end of episode 32, not a big spoiler, but that is where one arc is kind of clearly over and it's where Ed and Al, ha Ed and Al head off to the north and the whole right. northern arc starts. And so that'll be the rough split uh, between those two. I think that will make for a much more comfortable conversation for everyone. Yeah. And so uh, maybe next week, maybe in a couple weeks, but when we get uh, when we fully have time for it, that will be the next episode of Japanimation Station. Yes, which I'm very excited for. I think this is a good choice because also, you know, uh, uh, if people didn't know, you know, I'm, I'm a high school teacher. And so the semester started up um, this this week uh, was my first full week with teaching students, students in classroom because the week before that was a half week. So scheduling might be slightly inconsistent. We'll try to get these out on a timely manner. But if there's like occasionally a week delay, that might happen just because at the beginning of the semester, is very very busy particularly when it is a state i've never taught in before um at a school i've never taught at before so it's like having to learn all that new stuff so um hopefully there aren't many delays but there might be and if there are that would be the reason why as a teacher sean have any green-skinned but kind aliens come to pick up students and shock you i haven't seen that happen yet but i do have probably about eight to nine students who are reading volumes of Dragon Ball with their independent reading time. That made me very happy. Japan Animation Station.